0: Tell me, tell me,
1: tell me lies. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little
0: lies.
1: Lies,
2: lies, lies, and lies, and lies. Well, that's the topic of today, and a little bit of truth, and a little bit of. Uh, a little bit of crow serving, actually, um, today. It's going to be quite interesting. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, something that I've talked about many times before over the years uh, and kind of, um, you know, I think a lot of people are really upset that there was actually a plan or that there were people actually planning because just as they were about to kill the idea of there being a plan because they don't understand what the plan is, suddenly they see that there were people that actually had a plan. It's so weird. Obviously the people are part of that plan, but everything is so well thought out when you're going to war. And when there's a war like this, right, you have to be ready for anything. And someone today, uh, shared with me, uh, one of those types of history lessons. And I thought I would share it with you. And the reason I'm going to start off with this is because it's important for you to see uh, just how carefully thought out any mitigation is. See, when you know that there's a problem coming, you try to mitigate. For example, if you know uh, that you are going to come to a cliff and you need to cross over that cliff, when you drive up there, you'll make sure you have an apparatus to be able to cross that gap. If you know that you need to cross a river, you're gonna make sure you have a raft or a boat to continue your journey. So you mitigate by bringing the tools with you to when you get to that crossroad. Now, tools uh, can be various things. They can be hammers, screwdrivers, technology, and knowledge. See, uh, I, I remember once, I was provided an assignment and I was told that it was necessary for me to assume the role of allegedly, hypothetically speaking now, of a um, a VIP guest manager at a hotel. Now, I've never... Uh, worked at a hotel before. I had never seen what Fidelio is. I had no idea what it was. And here it is. I'm supposed to be in charge of all these people because I'm allegedly training from one in the United States to learn how to do the job in Europe. Apparently I had 10 years experience as well. Um, you know, the fake it till you make it is, is, is a funny thing. You can fake something, but in the end, (laughs) they're going to know when you're not clued up. So in order to be able to, um, take it And 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 complete this mission, you have to have the right tools. So for me to be in charge of all VIP guests flanking the general manager of a massive, you know, foreign hotel, I obviously can't say yeah, you know, and have someone else do it. I have to know how their systems work. I have to know how their email systems work. I have to know uh, names, key names. So what did I have to do? I had to study, right? So I had to study. I had to actually learn how to use, uh, the software. I had to know who I call to troubleshoot the software. I had to learn how to fold napkins. I kid you freaking not, not because I was supposed to fold napkins, but I was supposed to know when to tell someone off if they hadn't done it right. I had to learn how the bedrooms are cleaned in the suites. I had to learn how the flights are coordinated. I had to learn, um, how I would delegate tasks to concierge. It is just right so i had to learn and and this is a hypothetical situation doesn't necessarily mean it was a real situation so i had to learn i had to learn things in order to execute the real mission that i had with the correct knowledge and camouflage for knowledge other times you know like for example if i wanted to find out about stuff i'd just be like you know an intern or student or something So um, the reason I say this is because a lot of people don't seem to understand how war really works. And I was so excited that someone found this. I can't wait um, to play it for you. Not all of it, but for us to, you know, see it together, listen to it together. Um, This one is called... Um, this was for ninth grade Excel elective. Students are familiar with Roman battle tactics as they previously studied um Cannae. Hold on, sorry. As they previously studied Cannae, they also learned background information regarding the conquest of Germania. So this is the the introduction. And this is from a school called Wiley Groves High School. So I want you guys to hear how one of the biggest conquer strategies was done. And it was quite incredible the way it was done. Because it was done by... Take a listen.
3: This is the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest. I know, I know. It occurs in uh, 9 A.D., Somewhere around September, we're not 100% sure exactly when it occurred, but what is fascinating about this battle is it is going to pit the organized might of Rome against what had previously always been the disorganized Germanic tribes to, to start off with.
2: So the teacher's notes say, the lesson deals with planning and intelligence. Arminius became the enemy so he knew the enemy.
3: And you guys already know that uh, Germania had been pacified, but that there was a revolt in the Balkans that meant that most of the uh, Roman legions had to leave that area, leaving only three legions or about 36,000 total Romans. Now that's, they're not all soldiers. All those people couldn't be soldiers. That'd be more than three legions, but it was soldiers, camp followers, people like that. And what's happening is The gentleman who is in charge of the Romans, his name was uh, Publius Quintillus Varus. And Varus was a commander who was most well known for being brutal toward enemies. He's not the most experienced commander. He's not bad. He's just not the kind of guy you want in charge of a real important operation. And that's because the real important operation was in the Balkans. Germany was pacified. So you didn't have to have your greatest general there. And so Varus has about 36,000 troops. Most of them are infantry, but he does have some cavalry, right? Along with him, he has his Germanic auxiliaries or mercenaries. And these are led by Arminius. And we've already talked a little bit about Arminius and What they're going to be up against is a bunch of Germans. Now what you notice is if you take a look here, Arminius shows up as the leader of the Germans. But at this point, he's the leader of the Roman auxiliary. That's going to tell you that there'll be a little shift during the battle. The Germans had somewhere around 18,000 men. We're not sure. It could have been a little more, It could have been a little less. They had some cavalry, but we don't know exactly how many. All right. What you have is a situation where Varus believes that he doesn't have to work. Is a situ-
2: I just want to read this out from a podcast peeps. Archaeologists have found few remains or even weapons that can positively uh, be identified as Germanic. So what he's saying is that the leader of the Germania army there was this guy named Arminius, but Arminius was actually Roman. So he became the enemy and led their army. Hmm only to destroy them
3: situation where varus believes that he doesn't have to worry about germany as a matter of fact he's going to move toward the rhine and relative safety and encamp for the winter no one fights during the winter it's cold and so that's what he's planning on doing he is met by a bunch of german chieftains and what they say to him is can you please leave Roman soldiers with us for protection? Now, verus hears this and he thinks, wow, the Germans actually want us here. And so what he does is he basically gives each of these tribes a cohort, or a little over 400 men. And he says, okay, yeah, you guys march and you act like police officers for each of these individual villages, and the rest of the army is going to head back toward the Rhine. Well, what's interesting is
2: this. And he says Varus feels this proves Germania. Germania is friendly and also demonstrates the depth of the strategy employed by Arminius.
3: This was a plan hatched by Arminius. Arminius is not a Roman. He looks like a Roman. He acts like a Roman. He is in charge of Roman legions.
2: Yes, he is. But his
3: heart is German. And he is leading the resistance.
2: So, um, this is a very good uh, video to watch for all of you uh, on the other channels. We're going to talk about this strategy but by not talking about it, but actually showing you about how nanotechnology has... We we need to talk about transorganic real entities uh, and and what that really means. So... um, Here we go. I've put the link in the chat uh, and I will be terminating the feeds uh, other than Twitch and Trovo. So make your way over. Uh, I do want to maintain those channels and therefore I will not be um, showing and discussing my... um, I mean, you can't talk about coronavirus, even if you're a handicapped kid that got injured from the virus, right? Because that's considered misinformation too. So uh, the Battle of Tutteborg Forest is a quite interesting. I would highly suggest uh, that you guys watch it. And one fabulous comment was Germanic mercenaries like the Husseins from the revolutions. The same ones that we crossed the Delaware River in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve to slain in their sleep. Right? That's what's up. So, what am I saying without saying? There are plans within plans within plans within plans. and, Here is how they lay out and how history tells you exactly where the future is going. Now, if you remember correctly, and I will pull it up so that way, uh, those of you that are online can see it yourself. And I did take away that annoying little pop out bar for all of you that, um, you know, told me that it was quite annoying. Hold on a second. Okay, there we go. I am going to share this page so I can show you what everyone's bitching about today. Here's the crow serving. So here we are on my site, ToriSays.com. We're going to put this in the search function of NSA. And you can also look at the reports, the video reports that um, Millie Weaver had done. So you can see on October 25th, 2019. I have an article that's titled Obama Plant in the NSA Allowing Ukraine and Democrats to Spy on U.S. Citizens. Now, for anyone calling me disinformation, I'd like to say uh, I hope you enjoy your crow because I already told you (laughs) Uh, surveillance goes both ways. So um, for those that are a little bit confused and claim things... (laughs) You know, this is what panic looks like. I just, want, I just did a simple search on my article, right? And it clearly shows you Obama plant in the NSA allowing Ukraine and Democrats to spy. So let me uh, further that. Uh, here we go. Uh, Hunter Biden. Where is it? NSA. I have so many NSA ones. It's ridiculous. Let's see also ties into the new york you know let's just open that one which is the most important one expose obama shadow operatives hmm fbi paid crowdstrike for dnc server work hmm but i just want to open up that one because this one tells you exactly everything you need to know so this is how oh, i thought i got rid of it and i didn't did i i thought i did The pop-up is still there. It won't go away. I'll fix it, I promise. Okay, so uh, over here is this guy, Mr. Storch, the IG of the NSA. (laughs) Remember, Mr. Storch, who was actually asked by the Ukraine to uh, work for them, right? Mr. Storch, right? That's it. This is it. They were following to see who was talking to who in the Ukraine, the ones they named in the news are assumptions made according to the popularity, but they already know which journalists really have contacts and who are in contact with NSA NRO CSS whistleblowers that have not whistleblown in the conventional manner. Misinformation lies on both sides of the aisle, sometimes for notoriety, but other times purposely to muddle facts. So this was all out A long time ago. A long time ago. Here, Robert Storch will be proposed by Petro Poroshenko to the Commission on Audit on the President's Quota, which will be announced in advance after the meeting of the President with the ambassadors of the Group of Seven. Again, this is the guy, right? This is the guy that's supposed to be protecting whistleblowers. He was the DOJ prosecutor for over 24 years on public corruption, deputy criminal chief and counsel to the United States Attorney of the Northern District of New York, assistant U.S. attorney for over 17 years. Post-9-11, he was the first ever anti-terrorism coordinator. (laughs) So he was the point man for 9-11. Deputy IG of the DOJ, he worked with Horowitz before his nomination to IG of the NSA. So he was his right-hand man. Department of Justice resident legal advisor in Ukraine for 26 freaking months. Chairman of the Council of Inspector Generals on Integrity and Efficiency of Whistleblower Obnisman Working Group established by the Whistleblower Obnisman Program. Oh, and just so you know, the National uh, uh, Anti-Corruption Bureau of the Ukraine is actually run by his wife. So all of this is something that I talked about two fucking years ago. And now we have everybody crying that, oh, my God, whistleblowers told us that, you know, what, you can't see anything? Yeah, you can. Not only that, hold on, I think I still have that report that Millie did. Let me find it. Give me a second. Let me find it. I wasn't even thinking of putting it out, you know, because everyone else is real news and, you know, If you're not their friend, you're fake news. No, you guys are all fake. I think this is it. I'm going to... Uh, Let me see. I'm going to fast forward here for a second. Let me just make sure that this is it. We actually put him on show. I'm trying to think. No, it was before that. Let's see. Give me a moment. Hmm... Gosh darn it. Why is it so difficult to find this? Okay. It is. Is it how he infiltrated the Trump administration? With all these losers pretending to be his friend. Losers. Loser journalists. Loser everything. They don't report the news. They could have. They didn't. So anyone calling this disinfo is so, so corrupt. Hold on. I need to find it where we put him on showcase. There we go. We put him over here. All right. Ready, you guys? One. Okay, let's do this. Let's remind ourselves before we show them whining on Newsmax. Give me a sec. Here we go. Found it.
0: We're just down to the wire with the last few skirmishes being played out between the Trump administration and the deep state. But you would never know it because the mainstream media doesn't want you to know. And the alternative media is too wrapped up in infighting, engaging in cancel culture, etc. Many people are like, when are people finally going to be held accountable? It's actually happening right now. Right in front of us, I was able to confirm what sources had alleged, namely that there really wasn't a whistleblower who had kicked off this impeachment inquiry, and that the Intel Committee Chairman Adam Schiff was actually getting information from a wiretap. The alleged whistleblower and testifying witnesses with secondhand information were used to give witness testimonial credibility to ill gotten information. This was verified by Schiff revealing telephone call information he had obtained on the president, his personal attorney Giuliani, the Intel Committee Minority Chairman Devin Nunes, investigative journalists like John Solomon reporting on the Ukraine, and others. The call information provided by Schiff in the impeachment inquiry more than suggested the what, where, and how Schiff had obtained the phone call records. Later that day, after I published my report, Laura Ingram had Sarah Carter on her show to discuss the developments regarding Adam Schiff's spying on the president. This is what they had to say. A knowledgeable source tells the Ingram angle tonight that not only did Schiff get dirt from the secret subpoenas that he sent
4: to phone companies, he also got help from the NSA.
2: So what we knew before three years ago, when we discussed the expansion of the NSA under the Obama administration, and how they allowed for basically spying on attorneys, spying on clergy—I mean, this is incredible—spying on, on what we consider basis? privileged journalists. Now what we're seeing is that Adam Schiff has taken this to the next level, and what he did was then expanded that put it out into the report and then use all the secondary contacts that he wanted exposed, exposed.
0: He in got the help. They got
4: help from AT&T and he got help from someone else in the government. He Our sources are AT&T, saying it's the NSA.
0: Absolutely. That is exactly what I've been hearing, too, from my sources. It shouldn't be a surprise that when the president tweeted, where is the whistleblower? I quickly responded that according to my sources, the whistleblower may actually be a wiretap. The president tweeted two days later with, there is no whistleblower. If my source can be publicly writing and tweeting about it for the last two years now, obviously the president knows about it. So the president
2: knows about it, but obviously a lot of clowns don't know about it. See, I would be giving the truth, but no one wanted to look at the truth. No one wanted to talk about the truth. And, you know, it's quite interesting because yesterday I came across this. And, you know, uh, Patrick Berge (laughs) years ago uh, told me, hey, you should put down that if they delete your content that they're tampering with a whistleblower. I want you to sit and think for a second. All of these journalists that have attacked uh, myself or Millie for reporting whistleblowers, are they not tampering with whistleblowers? You have to ask yourself, why would they try to silence a whistleblower? You remember when John here to help first came out? How many people trashed him actually a lot of people jumped on to get content like santa surfing and then they trashed them why who is controlling what information you are allowed to have access to they have knowingly and willingly tampered with whistleblowers wait So this report is from 2019 where she was using uh, actual information, factual information that I had provided. I was proven correct, but you know, other people know best. Take a listen. Judge Collier, judge Rosemary Collier was the judge, the FISA judge that signed off on the first FISA warrant. Why is she still sitting on a bench? She says the full scope of non-compliant querying practices had not previously been disclosed to the court. There was a preliminary um, discussion to see why they didn't dump the data for 72 hours. So here's where the cover-up begins.
0: And that is from 2018. So at that point, it was time to confirm other information reported by our source. Since we are assuming there's no whistleblower and that there was continued electronic surveillance of the president and the people around him, how is this possible? The NSA 702 Upstream.
5: Mission of the intelligence community has morphed, giving them more data collecting authority, all with the blessing of this court.
6: There's a dragnet of surveillance
7: now in place.
0: Where everyone's electronic communications are stored for 72 hours everyone's and everything.
7: All the devices in your
8: home that could potentially spy on you. These devices include Amazon's Echo, Google Home, networked video games, smart TVs, Facebook Live, laptop Skype cameras, home security cameras, baby monitors, and internet-connected appliances like Samsung's new Family Hub refrigerator that has web-connected cameras inside.
0: Anyone accessing this database has to log in and log out, which would be noticeable by anyone with oversight, leaving only one possibility, the Inspector General of the NSA.
9: Hello. I'm Rob Storch, and I'm honored to serve as the Inspector General at the National Security
4: Agency.
0: Who just happens to be the person who allegedly received the whistleblower complaint that kicked off the impeachment Inquiry.
4: Another thing we do that's really critical is we keep not only the head of the agency, but also the Congress as the people's representatives, timely informed regarding what we're finding in the agencies. And that's really critical for Congress to enable it to carry out its constitutional oversight and legislative functions.
0: But to understand how the IG of the NSA is implicated in providing intelligence to shift absent any whistleblower we must first understand how the fisa court was allowing illicitly obtained nsa 702 upstream over collection in the first place as soon as we began diving into the presiding judge of the fisa court judge rosemary collier who was instrumental in facilitating extensive overcollection from the nsa 702 upstream our computers and phones were hacked installed with malware and blocked via proxy servers from gaining access to the internet specifically our source material for this report while our phones began taking on a life of their own you only get flack when you're over the target By the time we got our computers cleaned up and our phones acting relatively normal again, Inspector Horowitz had testified in the Senate. We are here at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearing where Michael Horowitz has been testifying. And they've just been spying on the president, lying right before the Senate. I mean, I didn't have much Anticipations or expectations for Horowitz, given that he's an Obama holdover. The presiding judge of the FISA court had issued a condemning letter about the FBI's misuse of the FISA court. But I knew better. This was the beginning of a cover up. But to understand the cover up, we have to travel back in time where the chapter of this story began.
10: The main reason they were going for the FISA warrant initially was to go back historically and seize all his emails and texts and all that stuff from back months and even years. So they were covering the period that he was in the campaign. And that's exactly the reason they went for the FISA to get that stuff.
7: The answer to the question about whether that was just some misguided effort or a plot is how did it all start? And that's why you see John Durham looking back at the efforts and the actions of people like Jim Comey and John Brennan to look and see, did this start before the official crossfire hurricane date of July 31st? I've seen classified documents that indicates that it did.
1: In 2016, I had directed our Office of Compliance. Let's do a fundamental baseline review of compliance associated with 702.
0: September 26, 2016, Collier realizes that since late 2014 through early 2015, there was over-collection of data. John Carlin, former head of the National Security Division, submits his certification, Section 702, and then resigns.
1: We were doing queries unknowingly to the, the operator
2: So all of the queries were actually known. I have done extensive shows on this back in 2019 warning for 2020. So uh, again, I'm just flexing the, hey, I hope all of you eat crow and be very careful because like I said, people will not be able to walk out on the street without being harassed by the people for what they did. If you think that's just referring to the Democrats, you're very mistaken. We know who the Democrats are. They get tomatoed by their own people too. It's those that tampered with actual whistleblowers hmm, that are the problem. You have to ask yourself, look at who attacked whistleblowers and hey, now all this information is coming out. Wait, there's more. Wait, there's more. Let's look at them crying about it today. Uh, This is really, really important. You should see them talking about the NSA surveilling, uh, you know, uh, President Trump and his administration and people. And it's like, why are you crying now? I told you so. So the question we should all ask ourselves is, if they knew, why didn't they care then? Why are they so caring now? (laughs) That's a very good question.
9: government against political foes. We know what the IRS did to the Tea Party, and we know the FBI spied on the Trump campaign. Well, now we are learning the Biden administration is employing the same tactics. My competitor over at Fox News revealed an NSA whistleblower confirmed to him that the NSA is spying on him and his team. So now conservative talk show hosts are targets too of the Biden administration? Of course they are. I'm sure more are being spied on as well. And today, I learned something possibly even more troubling. After President Trump took office, the spying on his team apparently continued. A rogue intelligence community, loyal to the Obama-Clinton-Biden access of corruption, apparently spied on members of the Trump White House. That
2: Let's just stop this right here. They're reporting this on June 29th, 2021. When I was reporting on this in 2018, 2018, when I started with big league politics with my name on it, because I had given every single journalist that documentation. I said, read what the judge said. It's out in the public. Read it. So all you have to do is listen to my old shows about Judge Collier and how she spanked the crap in September of 2016, how she spanked. Comey, Clapper, Brennan, and Lynch with the 702s. And I told you how bullshit it was, how bullshit it was that, you know, they were saying, oh, it's human error. Oh, it's an algorithm error. And they dragged their feet to have an excuse. And when she saw that it still was out there, the warrants were still out there. She was like, yo, you know, you're constantly getting extensions, 90 days, 90 days. See, the question you should ask yourself is, why did these reporters hide this while the president was in office? Why are they doing it now? There's two answers, and the majority are the not-so-nicely answered. Some others are preparation. But take a look, take a look at them whining about it now. (laughs) Why are you whining about it? You knew it. I told you they were wiretapping the president. You knew it. Everybody knew it. So uh, there you go.
9: According to deputy assistant to the president, Sebastian Gorka, who claims he was one of the targets of the surveillance, also a target. President Trump's chief strategist, Steve Bannon, says Dr. Gorka. This is what happens in third world countries. It is not supposed to happen in America. But apparently it does. Well, please welcome to the program the host of the Gorka Reality Check here on Newsmax and former White House advisor for the Trump administration, Dr. Sebastian Gorka.
2: Eat crow, eat crow.
9: Dr. G, great to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Grant. All right, you and I were talking about this this morning. How did you first learn that they were possibly spying on you while you're working in... house and to think about that the ramifications to me are chilling that that could have been going on
11: i got to know a couple of great patriots one was a very senior former cia official who'd been a station chief and worked in the middle east after september the 11th and another one was a, a former member of the armed forces with a special forces and intelligence background And they told me after I left the White House that uh, they wanted me to know there is a part of the NSA. It is the uh, most aggressive cyber arm of the NSA called the Tailored Access Operations, the TAO. And there was a small unit of contractors in the TAO who had been tasked to actually surveil members of the Trump administration, me and Steve Bannon and others.
2: TAO you mean TAC?
11: others included
2: so can you prove
9: it and why wait until now to come out with this because uh you know clearly this is I believe illegal no
11: well, it utterly is, and uh, the methods they used are absolutely unconstitutional there 's a a dodge they worked out called traffic shaping where they whereby they know that they're not allowed to spy on u s uh, persons in the United States, but they know that internet communications are absolutely global, so the NSA uses its capacity to shape internet traffic to move the nodes of connection so instead of my email. Going from Washington, D.C. to New York, they route it through Malaysia and they say, oh, look, that's a foreign communication. Therefore, we can intercept it. So with traffic. (laughs)
2: Ah, <laughs> that's a lie. So, okay, wait. So, hold on a second. They don't have to shift the damn fucking. <laughs> see, see, see. They're saying things I said, and they're totally obfuscating what's up. Okay, Ooh, you need to watch Shadowgate so you know exactly where this information is being housed and who's following it. See, this is the problem. We have everyone running interference. We have every. Everyone telling you, oh my gosh, breaking news. The NSA, oh my God. The NSA is spying on everyone. The documents clearly say it. Oh, and you don't have to listen to this. You can listen to, uh, wait a minute, we should see this. Hold on a second. Let's, let's, let's take a look at this one. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is good. You know, I love uh, showing off <laughs> the, 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 the left when they speak truth. It's time to do that. It's time to do that. We should look at Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper, you guys. Yeah, he talked about it. Yes, he did. It's just kind of untimely. Your
12: pocket right now might be a government spying device, according to a stunning article from the Guardian newspaper in the UK. The story says a top secret court order is forcing Verizon to turn over all phone records for calls made in the US to the National Security Agency and not just calls made to overseas numbers when you call grandma in nebraska the nsa knows this is a wide indiscriminate net they're not even looking for someone specific when a call is made verizon turns over this information the phone number phone serial numbers the location the call comes from the time of the call the duration of the call and all the same information for the person on the other end of the phone even if they're not a verizon customer and If you move from one tower range to another, you can be tracked. Pretty much everything about the call, except what's actually being said, is turned over under the order from the secret Foreign Intelligence Surveillance, or FISA, court.
2: Don't you remember how all of them would tell you the truth at that time? This is 2013. Isn't this interesting?
12: Given that, it would not take much to figure out who you are. Without exactly confirming or denying the FISA order, Deputy White House Press Secretary Josh Ernest defended the idea behind it today. The information of the sort described in the article has been a critical tool, he said, in protecting the nation from terror threats. This order reportedly extends from April 25th to July 19th, but it seems to be just a continuation of a court order that's been going on for seven years, one Congress has known all about. The Republican chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Today, called it a vital tool. Within the last few years, this program was used uh, to stop a program, or excuse me, stop a terrorist attack in the United States. We know
7: that. Uh, it's 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 important. It fills in a little seam that we have. And it's right. used and to make slip. sure that there is not an international nexus to
12: any uh, terrorism event that they may believe is ongoing in the United States. So in that regard, it is a very valuable thing. And in all likelihood, this court order to Verizon is just the only one we know about. You know who would would be really angry about this government snooping? A bright-eyed senator from Illinois, I remember, who was upset when a similar story about the NSA grabbing phone data for millions of Americans was reported during the Bush years. He said this in 2007.
5: I will provide our intelligence and law enforcement agencies with the tools they need to track and take out the terrorists without undermining our Constitution And our freedom. That means no more illegal wiretapping of American citizens. No more national security letters to spy on citizens who are not suspected of a crime. No more tracking citizens who do nothing more than protest a misguided war.
12: So instead let's track every citizen? One member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence who has been briefed on these practices and
2: Did you catch that? Did you see how Jake Tapper used to call people out? He called out Barack Hussein Obama. He said it. He said it. He said it. Listen, things have changed, haven't they? My oh my.
12: Clearly upset. although until today we were not really sure what he was upset about because he could not tell us, is Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon on march 12th about a month and a half before
2: remember senator ron wyden was the one that gave the heads up to the eac saying yo you guys aren't certified we're not having certifiable elections in 2017 if you don't certify yes that same senator was the one that dropped the crumb for us to find uh how they were not certified
12: before this current order was signed wyden seemed to be trying to get the Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, to admit that this kind of NSA operation was going on.
6: Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not.
2: So he lied.
12: Wittingly. If the order uncovered by the Guardian is merely a renewal...
2: Not wittingly?
12: As the chairwoman of the Senate Intelligence Committee today indicated, then shouldn't Clapper's answers have been yes and quite wittingly? Clapper's office today did not respond to a request for comment.
2: So that was CNN in 2013 telling the people the truth, calling Barack Hussein Obama to the carpet. Uh, you know, they obviously omitted the whole Obama phones. But again, here I am to serve up a little bit of crow to all of you, because none of you are relevant. The media is completely obsolete. We do not need them because we've known this for a while. I have been saying this with publicly available information, and I risked my everything. So the first thing I did was get myself targeted and removed from my position. Because at that time in 2013, I really believed, I really, really, really believed that people were fed up in 2012. And no matter how much information I gave to Congress and the Senate, none of them did anything. None of them did anything. And not only that, I put my name on it. I actually, I am a whistleblower and no one seems to understand what I gave up. Many will say, well, what did you give up? Well, like I said, I have a dying mother that I can't visit. That's what I gave up. So when people talk shit, I want them to know you will pay for that 10 times over. The people will be very unforgiving. The people will not forgive that you kept them in the dark all this time for what? So now we're going to see what a new wave of attacks. Watch out and, and listen to what they're telling you. Listen to what the knowingly and willingly guys I gave you that information a long time ago, and then my friend, Millie Weaver, took my information and put it in a digestible video for all to understand just how critical this is. So all those fake journalists and pundits, huh, eat crow, bitches.
11: they shaping, they break the constitutional restrictions on the NSA, and they spy on people for political purposes. Uh, as to proof, um, yeah. a very, very highly respected journalist has uh, has the evidence, and she promised me that she will. Uh, Publicly uh, disclose her sources, so when she does that, uh, we'll have something to refer to. But what Tucker said is not an accident, and uh, we know this. Whether it's uh, uh, whether it's uh, Mike, w- whether it's Mike Flynn being surveilled, whether it's uh, this so-called Azra Turk, this FBI asset that was used to try and entrap George Papadopoulos in the UK, uh, we know there is a political perversion of the intelligence community by Obama holdovers.
2: And if you. Why are they talking about it in 2021 when we told you in 2018? I told you myself in 2018. Only very few people saw that, right? Then I told you again in 2019, and then I had Millie Weaver tell you it in 2019 in a very digestible manner. Yet now we have them coming out in 2021 saying that they have a journalist, a female journalist, who will come out with her sources to tell them, who are you going to prop up? Because you're obviously not propping up the whistleblower that told you in the first place.
9: You can real quickly, because we're short on time. These are deep state, as I said, Obama, Clinton, Biden, the the access of corruption, loyalists, deep in government. But you're working for the president of the United States. He's the commander in chief. The national security implications of rogue agents inside the United States government uh, frightens me. And the information they could learn, they could do great harm to this nation. Real quick, I give you the last word.
11: One last piece of evidence. I was given a special task, a kind of terrorist task uh, to work on with regards to the Middle East. I wanted to get uh, three of my former pupils who are uh, FBI agents detailed to me in the White House. That should be easy. Clearances are passed and they come and work for me. It should take two weeks. For six months, it didn't happen. Every week, I went out to the HR department and said, where are my guys? Where are my agents with the clearances? They never arrived. And finally, a good guy at the FBI came to me and said the following. These are his words, senior FBI agent. Sebastian, you need to understand, you're never going to get those details because the seventh floor of the Hoover Building looks at the Trump administration as quote unquote, Grant, the enemy. The man elected by 64 million Americans is the enemy to the FBI.
9: Their hatred of President Trump and his love of freedom Put national security at risk by not giving you the men and women that you need to do your job inside the White House. We're going to keep following the story. I know you're going to keep following the story.
2: No, you, they need to go back in time and follow the real story. Not only that, I actually explained in this article over here that I'm going to share with you now how and what I did to make this known. So in this article here, I talk about an Obama shadow plant that was ousted from the ODNI. So when um, uh, our amazing Rick Grinnell, with his sexy satchel uh, goes uh, into the ODNI temporarily she leaves. So in this article, I tell you who she is. She was the one that was the point person in the U S for WMD in the white house. This bitch was the one that outed me. And this is the chick that took me down when I started to be putting things together. So I wanted to make it clear. I have been extremely transparent and straightforward I am a whistleblower and nobody took that as they should. Nobody took that as they should. So I urge all of you to go back and look at my articles. I already spoke of this a long time ago, a long, long time ago. The NSA spying a long time ago. And the thing is, it's not just from the inside knowledge. I cannot violate right? I cannot violate, uh, you know, it's general OPSEC, right? I can't show things that don't have a chain of custody. I can't speak of things that will throw me into a cell. But what I can do is I can wait to find the right, the right publicly available information in order to usher in the facts. And that's exactly um, what we have been doing. So as you can see, the statement future proves the past is showing you exactly what it is. There's so many whistleblowers out there, so many, that have been trashed, that have been completely trashed. Why? Because you can't fathom that there are what? Compartmentalized operations outside of your purview? Oh man, if people actually knew just of the truth, that are currently serving in any of these agencies, they wouldn't be able to sleep at night. They wouldn't be able to fathom how it is. And when people say technology today, you have no idea the technology we have. So this is why we're going to talk about my favorite, graphene. And this is why I disconnected from the other channels, only because we're going to touch base on uh, nano science, uh, transorganic real entity science. Uh, It will be an introduction. But before we do, I want to show you what the U.S. GM, the U.S. Agency for Global Media, had to say about supporting real journalists. This is really important, and you're going to remember this later coming this summer. Uh, It's going to be quite fascinating to watch what happens. And from none other, (laughs) Adam Schiff, here we go.
5: Hello, I'm Congressman Adam Schiff, and I'm proud to co-chair the bipartisan Congressional Press Freedom Caucus. This week, President Biden will meet with Russian President Putin. And I know that the entire world will see a strong and forceful America, and one that won't turn a blind eye to Putin's authoritarianism. Recently, Putin took the extraordinary and egregious step of freezing bank accounts and targeting journalists working for the free and independent broadcast network, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. A free and independent press is essential for a free society, and Putin's actions have provided additional and disturbing examples of the lengths to which he will go to silence individual journalists. There are few places in the world where a free and independent press is more necessary than in Russia, a place where political opponents are routinely silenced.
2: (laughs) Is he referring to the United States of America? I just want to make sure.
5: Elections are not free or fair, and people suffer under the weight of corruption.
2: Sounds like the USA today.
5: an indispensable purpose in the societies they serve, and no reporter should ever face violence or prosecution for doing their job.
2: Hold on a second. Uh, how many people have been canceled? Not allowed to use Cash App, PayPal, Venmo platforms. Not free elections. Is he describing the United States of America?
5: So we cannot sit quietly as Putin or any opponent of a free press attempts to silence or intimidate journalists who are striving to tell the truth. President Biden. What the.
2: F- It's like what? It's like the devil talking about committing sin and condemning people for it. Are you kidding? Listen to this.
5: Biden has many pressing issues to raise with Putin, but I am hopeful that he will be advocating for the right of the press to do their work without a target on their backs from autocratic regimes like Putin's.
2: You mean like how the Epoch Times has been blackballed, right? You mean what? How this has been blackballed and that and that person, and that person, and silence, and how they are literally advocating to strangulate anyone that has free speech or reporting things they don't like. This, why isn't this on every freaking cover of right-wing conservative media? To say the hypocrisy is just disgusting, and if it's bipartisan, every single motherfucking journalist that believes in free speech should be at that hearing and pointing out Every single American that has been held to those Putin-like standards, right? This is it. You know what? I mean, the whole world is laughing at us. Look at what he's saying with a straight face, okay? And the glistening, you know, social media, you know, lighting ring in his eye. (laughs) This is what, like, uh, you know, those beauty things where they hold up the eyeshadow and stuff on YouTube. (laughs) The beauty bloggers block. He's got the little circle right there in his eye. So, uh, you know, uh, this is ridiculous. Where are they? Where's the real press? Huh. Hmm. It's been sitting there for a couple of days. This is published for a couple of days. Why hasn't anybody talked about what Schiff said? Why isn't there a mass push, RSBN banned? Off networks, right? They don't want to hear it. Uh, Epic Times, True News, The War Room, me, Millie, all banned. Bam, 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 bam. You can't see their content. This banned, that banned. You're removed. You're removed. You can't bank. You're not allowed to use this. You can't this. You can't. Th- Are you kidding? This is okay, but it's not okay if another country is doing it to your spies in Voice Europe. Stop. Stop. The hypocrisy is real. Stop. Now, let's take a quick break so we can get into the whole uh, manotech. I'll see you guys in just a bit. Okay? I
13: don't want to set the world on fire. I just
2: All right. Welcome back, everyone. So now we're going to shift a little bit gears and put our thinking hats on and uh, kind of understand uh, a few things of about nanotech and quantum systems. Um, I had mentioned many times before about this uh, you know, Latino, that I had uh, the pleasure of sharing a desk together for a long time. This guy uh, was researching uh, correlation. He's an epidemiologist. I can't speak today. And um, he was looking at the correlation of uh, coexisting diseases such as uh, malaria and HIV, So as I was learning about his studies back in 2010 and 2009 and 2010, 2009 is where I was aware that he was getting that um, uh, fellowship thingamajiggy postdoc stuff uh, at the University of Kentucky. I um, happened to sign up for a seminar uh, to spend time with him and got to learn a lot about his research. Now, yesterday we talked about being hyper-focused and target fixation So this is a very good example of that. See, he was looking at the correlation of prostitutes that were HIV positive and how people that had malaria, when they had sex with these prostitutes, they wouldn't get HIV. One thing that he missed, and for me was uh, quite interesting, was the pharmacological aspect of it. Because I noticed that the patients that were on hydroxychloroquine for malaria uh, were not getting HIV. Now, he's published a lot of papers uh, with this. So I was quite glad to be able to get into that seminar. I was like I took so many classes, you guys, that I really didn't want to take, um, only because I needed to be in proximity to people that were getting some certain things done. And this is one of them. This is how long I've been studying for this war. So I realized that hydroxychloroquine, uh, when the patient's looking at his data and he totally dismissed it because he wasn't focused on that. He was mapping out, you know, comorbidities. He was looking at it as comorbidity maps, right? Um, what I noticed, um, that he missed, which we found later on in the future timeline that he had missed was that uh, hydroxychloroquine and, and, and in general anti-parasitical medications, uh, because the, he also looked at the correlation with the H- HIV transmission with other um, morbidities that were parasite and bacterial um, uh, correlations. That's what he does. He like maps out um, kind of like a heat map of comorbidi- co coexistence of uh, certain uh, diseases. Anyway. So I sat with him and I saw it. And obviously, you know, I had mentioned it once to him. I was like, you know what? It could be hydroxychloroquine. He's like, well, that wouldn't make sense. It's not supposed to have that type of um, property for HIV. Now, what makes HIV so interesting to me? And what hydroxychloroquine, what I saw, was doing to that. And this is where I went into studies because this falls into other uh, classes that I took. And one of them I actually shared my memory on Telegram was from 2009, uh, where I was uh, looking at and studying uh, the effects of uh, certain uh, signaling pathways for Alzheimer's and what would cause it. And again, when people are target fixated, (laughs) they don't pay attention. So here's how you can, uh, you know, understand how there, I shouldn't say that. I'm going to hold that. Not for now. So let's go to HIV. So here's what HIV does. For those of you that don't seem to really understand it a lot, and I'm going to try to simplify it. It's not exact, but it's a simplification. HIV, I want you to envision in your mind a little sphere, right? And that's a cell, right? And what happens is is that this cell creates little receptors on its surface like antennas, that, um, bind to other cells that could be skin cells. I'm just spitballing here. T cells, B cells, heart cells, uh, you know, lymphocyte, any lymphocyte you might think of, uh, any, any cell. So it's basically like a ball that can attach and destroy and seek and destroy any cell. It has antennas. The way that it gets activated is if there's a binding to that receptor, meaning it doesn't have to, like, touch with the skin cell, for example, right? Because it's not activated, right? It needs to be activated to be like, oh, shoot, I see you. Because cells like this can't see. They don't have eyes, okay? They don't have eyes. But what they have are receptors. And these receptors get these little um, picture... uh, what I'm trying to think picture the letter Y okay and place it on a ball as that Y sits there it has a very specific shape of that Y it could be curved or whatever and it has to identify with a very specific ball that has to fall in there to get the big ball the cell activated to do something it's a it's it's highly precise so uh The pockets are very precise. The coding is very precise. It's super precise. (laughs) I can't explain it otherwise. HIV has the receptors for everything, so it can be activated for anything. And this is why you're immunocompromised, because no matter if you get sick for some reason, hyperactivity within your body of your innate blood cells, meaning your B cells that are your innate response And and then further on, your T cells can actually activate HIV within you that's sitting there and just hanging out. And this is why you die from something like a common cold because you have HIV, you're immunocompromised. Um, And this goes back to um, just binding of atoms in a specific. So rather than me show you how ligands bind um, how there's binding in cells. I wanted to show you this crash course in chemistry. So you can envision elements because you're going to need this for graphene. Um correctly. It's almost the same thing. I've said, you know, it's not how, what binds, it's how it binds. And atoms are all different on how they interact with each other. So how a metal can interact with, you know, a biological cell, it's all about the curves, the structures, and the electrons being exchanged. So I thought we can start with that, and uh see this nice crash course in chemistry uh because he actually simplifies it quite well okay and um i i really like the way he did it
4: time thinking about atoms is looking like this there's a ball and there's a stick and there's another ball and another stick it's just a bunch of balls stuck together by these little wooden bonds simple pretty easy to understand and thus as you have probably come to expect it is entirely incorrect. Nuclei really can be understood as little balls, and that's more or less correct. Though when you get to some of the bigger, less stable ones, they start looking more oblong and weird, like a rugby ball. Atoms are basically ball-like as well, with electrons in a spherical cloud around the nucleus. But molecules, as we discussed last time, do not look like balls on sticks. Bonds don't form into a neat little line. They form from overlapping electron clouds, or shells, flowing around the nuclei of bonded atoms. If you really get down there and understand what they look like, they're like, lumpy clumpy globs of probable electron locations. And these lumpy clumps of probable electron locations do not behave the way you might initially expect them to behave. Oh no, that would be far too simple. They behave based on quantum mechanical three-dimensional wave functions, probabilistic distributions of electrons in space. And yeah, by the end of this episode, you're gonna understand what I just said, and it's gonna be awesome! Let's start with water, because all the interesting things on our planet start with water. It's also universally common, not just on our planet, but in our galaxy and our universe. Case in point, in 2011 astronomers discovered a cloud of water ice surrounding a black hole that contains 140 trillion times more water than we have here on Earth. And while we don't have any confirmed worlds covered in water outside of our solar system, we do have some right here in our solar system. Europa contains so much water, probably salt water, that its entire surface is just ice. What did any of that have to do with atomic orbitals? Nothing. I just felt like maybe I scared you with all that quantum mechanics talk before the intro, and I wanted to chill you out for a second. Okay. So water. We did its Lewis structure last week, remember? Each hydrogen bonding to the oxygen atom, and voila! But that drawing is linear, just a straight line through all the nuclei, and we know, just instinctually at this point, that water is a bent molecule. But why? Why is water crooked? Unbonded atoms within a molecule generally like to be as far away from each other as possible, especially if they have the same partial charge as the two hydrogens do with their partial positives. But something is keeping those hydrogens closer together than they would like to be. So why on Earth are they not stretched out as far away from each other as possible? I ask this because if they were, the water molecule wouldn't be polar, and if water was suddenly nonpolar, we would all instantly die, as would all life on Earth. And suddenly we realize that this seemingly normal thing that we all knew about the world is really weird, and weird stuff is my favorite stuff because it means interesting questions. Interesting questions I want to know the answer to. It's an even more compelling question than what the heck is a quantum mechanical three dimensional wave function? Well, of course, the answer to this question has a great deal to do with quantum mechanical three dimensional wave functions, so let's start there. Oh, look! I've got a telephone cord! This is what old people used to use to get their voices into wires so they could be transmitted across the world before cell phones, but today, it's pretty much only useful for demonstrating electron fields. Electrons are both particles and waves, which is not an easy thing to imagine. Very basically, you can think of them as an excitation of the electron field, which exists everywhere. When energy is dumped into the electron field, electrons exist inside a wave function. What's a wave function? It's a mathematical function that describes the probability that an electron is in a certain place at any given moment. So if this telephone cord is an electron field, I dump some energy into it and we create what's called a standing wave. The wave function is the mathematical function that describes it. Electrons function the same way. They exist as excitations in the electron field around the nucleus in a standing wave. The simplest of these wave functions is the s orbital, which can contain two electrons and is a spherical pattern of standing waves around the nucleus. Standing. we can have different numbers of nodes, allowing patterns to repeat themselves when there are more electrons around the nucleus. Every orbital can contain, and indeed is at its lowest energy when it contains two electrons. Hydrogen has one electron in its s orbital. Helium, an ultra-stable, very low-energy noble gas, has two. It's happy because it has its shell filled. But of course, there are other sorts of orbitals as well. After we fill the first and second s orbitals, we move on to filling the p orbital, Or rather, I should say p orbitals, because we're talking about three-dimensional space here. So there can be one on the x-axis, and one on the y-axis, and one on the z-axis. Each of those can contain two electrons for a total of eight, with two in the s orbital and six in the three p orbitals. And yes, those eight electrons are the reason for the whole octet rule thing. Remember now, the periodic table is a map of the orbitals as they fill. Elements in the s block are filling their s orbitals. Elements in the p block are filling their p's. Same with the d's and the f's. So s orbitals, very simple, spherical. P orbitals, a little bit weirder. d and f orbitals, so crazy. Some of the f orbitals in particular have just ridiculously cool geometries. Lots of fancy math is involved in writing out these wave functions and understanding them. So with hydrogen, we've just got the one s orbital. It's a sphere. Marvelously uncomplicated. But in the second shell, we have an s orbital and three p orbitals. The p orbitals, if they were all by themselves, look like this. But when you actually stick them around an atom, the s and p orbitals start to interact with each other, doing their best not to overlap and changing each other. The s and the p orbitals can merge into hybrid sp orbitals. Instead of being two different kinds of orbitals, they become four identical orbitals, trying their best not to overlap. This is called orbital hybridization. When the s orbital hybridizes with all three p orbitals, it's called sp3 hybridization, and it forms a tetrahedral shape. And this is that tetrahedral shape. It's the easiest way for all the orbitals to form something like a sphere around the atom but not interact too much. I didn't do anything fancy to make these balloons take this shape. I just tied them together at the base. They naturally form this shape because they can't overlap with each other. And yes, this is exactly what's going on with water. In water? oxygen eight electrons are arranged with two in each sp3 hybridized orbital. Two of those electrons are from hydrogen, six are from oxygen, including two lone pairs. Those lone pairs, even though they're not participating in any bonds, still have their orbitals. And so water is locked into that tetrahedral structure. No matter which orbital you stick the hydrogen atoms to, you're stuck with an asymmetrical molecule. That, along with the difference in electronegativities of oxygen and hydrogen, leads to the polarity of water and the existence of life.
2: So, uh, that being said, now that you got a little bit of a a taste of how uh, water plays a big role, I think we should move over to graphene. So, fun story, Uh, (laughs) fun story. Years ago, I met a guy, happens to be Greek, and in his basement, uh, well, in his garage, he's into biotechnology. He invented a method to uh, mass-produce graphene oxide, which is the graphene that they want. So the way they want graphene, little specks of it are just enough. So um, the way that they... uh, the way graphene works is because of its structure. It has a very specific structure, and it's actually very, very tiny. Uh, Dr. Hare actually created a video uh, a while back that um, talks about this. This is from <laughs> a long, long time ago, and I, I think it's over ten years old. Um, let me check. Actually, it's a, it's eleven years old. And um, he breaks down uh, the structure of graphene. And someone in the chat I saw realized what I was saying. So many, many times I have said this, and I stick to it as a story. Clementines, mandarins, uh, when you're sick and uh, you have the the travel bug, you know, where you get like the, the sniffles, you get a little bit of a cold. The one thing that I have said is eat them because the structure of how they deliver uh, vitamin C to increase the turgents to make your mitochondria more turgid in order to produce better and to be able to process radical oxygen species better, you must eat it because the structure presents itself different. And someone said, holy crap it's hexagonal. So that's specific. And I tell people, it's not like eating one or two. Uh, It's the structure on the way it's delivered in your body. You can get intravenous, um, intramuscular deliverance of vitamin C. You can drink it. You could do it sublingual. But unfortunately, they're not as potent as mandarins or clementines in the way it's delivered. Oranges aren't even that potent, but those are. And it's because of the structure. And that's why, you know, when people are like, well, I had a couple, I said, you need to eat like a lot, like increase the level to like what you would think it's just like, you need to get one bag. That's like usually three pounds, eat the whole bag. That's what I tell people have one whole bag. Maybe, you know, you'll be attached to the toilet a little bit the next day. Cause that's what an increase in vitamin C does. It gives you the runs a little bit, but guess what? Within 24 to 48 hours, you will be done with whatever cold ails you. And that's because you're fueling your mitochondria, which are the batteries of yourself to actually target radical oxygen species. So, um, that's why I, um, I have been saying it. It's because of the structure. So here we go into structure. You should understand the structure of graphene to understand why I've been talking about it for years, for years.
1: Pretty interesting stuff. So let's talk a bit more about graphene. Now graphite is loads of hexagon sheets, one on top of the other. If you remove one of those hexagon sheets, you get a single layer of graphite, which is called graphene. And in principle, it's basically hexagons uh, surrounded by hexagons surrounded by hexagons. Uh, But of course, there's always the edge where the bonding isn't really satisfied. So if we take, for example, the one hexagon ring, You can imagine putting hydrogen on the end of each of the atoms and you end up with uh, C6H6, which is benzene. And of course, as they get bigger, the sheets, you're going to have proportionally less and less hydrogen. But in principle, every graphene sheet is probably one of these hydrocarbons. It's called a polyaromatic hydrocarbon, a PAH. Just to remind you how small these things are, if you put three million graphene sheets one on top of the other, It would only produce a crystal of graphite one millimetre thick. So how do we make a graphene sheet? Well, one way is to take a pencil, which is obviously graphite, and actually draw with it. Because as you draw with a piece of pencil, fragments of graphite are coming off. And some of them will be single layer pieces of graphite. In other words, graphene sheets. And I can show that a very simple experiment that you can do. If you get a, a battery and you wire it up to a little LED. And on here, I've got two metal contacts. And uh, if I get a bit of metal, I've got a coin here, and I put that across here, it completes the circuit. And you can see that the LED lights. That's because the coin's conducting, of course. Well, graphite is a very good conductor as well. So if I take the pencil and just make, go across it with the pencil here, I'm building up layers of graphite sheets And you can see that the LED lights. Um, And so, if I take a rubber, for example, I can rub out some of these graphite sheets. I can use a bit of tape, using the sticky side of the tape. I can remove lots of these layers, and you can see that the LED brightness goes down. And if I was very clever, and probably very lucky, I could probably get it so that there was just a few graphene sheets, and I could actually measure the electrical properties this way. And it sounds very primitive, and it is very primitive. But the actual researchers in the field didn't do anything that more complicated. What they did was they got a crystal of graphite. I've got one here. And with a bit of tape, you put that on the crystal. And actually, you do this a few times to remove the impurities. There might be hydrogen and water and all sorts of stuff on the the surface of the graphite. But once you've done that and you've cleaned it up, you take a fresh piece, put it on the crystal, and pull it out. And actually, what you've got is fragments of graphite picked up by the tape. Now, if I bend this over, what we can do is we can then uh, capture the graphite on both sides. And as we pull it back again, we can separate out these fragments of graphite and split them in half. And if we keep on doing that with these fragments, using the sticky, sticky tape, we can actually halve and halve and halve and halve these graphite fragments. And eventually, you can make single layer pieces of graphite. In other words, you can make graphene sheets by nothing other than a piece of tape and a bit of pencil, basically. A better way of doing it is actually to get a piece of silicon, which is very, very flat, and draw the graphite across it, just like where you draw with a pencil. And sheets will come off onto the silicon. And with an optical microscope, it turns out that the multi-layer sheets, the pieces of graphite, look different from the single-layer sheets. And so just by inspecting it with an optical microscope, you can actually see the single-layer graphene layers with your eye. And then you can obviously separate them out and start doing measurements. So it's incredibly simple to make a graphene sheet. So why is graphene so interesting? Why did it win a Nobel Prize in physics?
2: So before we get into that I want to thank um some Downrange in the chat um Downrange shared and I'm going to forward it now to the main uh you know telephone thing. So on the 23rd of March 2020 I had uh done an interview um and it was from March 23rd 2020 where I talked to you about graphene and how I described it as the glue uh, to make things go. And hopefully, if you have the time, you can hear that old episode I just shared it. It was uploaded on May 3rd, 2020, uh, even though it was recorded on May 23rd, 2020.
1: Well, it turns out that it really is a two-dimensional material. Most things in nature are three-dimensional. And because it's two dimensions, it affects the properties of this material in ways that we're only just beginning to try and understand. For example, the electricity flows through the graphene sheet much faster than any other material, so it's got the best electrical conductivity of any material in the world. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we can in principle make them smaller and smaller because they're perfectly crystalline All the atoms are packed together in a regular array. We can make very very small devices out of this Because they're small, the electricity passes across them quickly. And because the electricity goes so quickly anyway, we're going to be able to make super fast computers or transistors with this stuff, which probably take very little power. Now, normally, the physics that describes solids is a thing called quantum physics. And there's all sorts of weird predictions that quantum physics has. You can even have things called tunneling, particles tunneling through other particles. Because the electrons travel so fast in this material, we have to use a thing called relativistic quantum mechanics or quantum electrodynamics. And that's an even weirder world than quantum mechanics. The particles, the electricity flowing through the material are called Dirac particles. And antiparticles and particles can form spontaneously. And as a result, there's a whole load of amazing predictions for this very simple, humble graphite sheet, which is promising amazing new things for the future. It really is an exciting material.
2: So if you remember, I've told you about an experiment that Starbucks had conducted. What Starbucks had done is that they had, um, they had figured out how they can open up corporate stores better. What they did was they tried to find their loyal customers and where they live. So in, and they use this also to count metrics on who shops what and where, um, and who digests what. I'll tell you why. Um, so graphene is quite interesting. You can genetically modify almost everything uh, with it, and I say this because it is, um, its all—it's—it's om- it's like glue, and it binds with. Uh, um, biological molecular structures almost seamlessly, almost seamlessly. This is why I said when I saw what they were claiming was the virus, I could see that there was a seam because the seam was attached with a string of adenine. Uh, So that means that it was modified. And that means that there was a modification on on what they were presenting, Uh, hence probably why it wasn't live, because it's very difficult to alter something live. Now, this goes back to quantum uh, computing and what I have been saying I know very well, and everyone can say whatever they want, but they can't prove me wrong because I have been on point for years and there is evidence of that. So eat your crow and shut up. Now, moving along, quantum, how this works. A little strip of graphene costs a fortune. In one little speck that you can hardly see in your eye, you can house and you can create one of the biggest exchanges of current. We all know that we run on a very low current as well. Graphene is used as a patch, as a glue, when you want to make genetic modifications. Here's where the fallback is. And genetic modifications, meaning you want to bring something foreign in, like you want to create a chimera, this would be the right glue. You won't be able to stick anything to your DNA phosphorus backbone unless there is the right interface. The problem, though, with graphene is is that it mimics carbon uh, in in some spaces and can cause tangles. Uh, This is what causes Alzheimer's, tau tangles. Tangles are very specific in how they occur. I'm trying to see if I have... Um, Ooh, did I keep that video for you guys? There was this video. Yes. That I'm going to show you on how nanorobots already exist inside you, but they're biological. And this comes from the world science festival, which by the way, I watch all the time. I freaking love watching nerds talk and, um, you know, Sometimes I think, wow, could you imagine if they knew this? You know, I think of that sometimes. But this is where you're going to see the miracles that happen within your uh, body. Uh, this is exactly why graphene is so important. Now, um, one thing that I that I had shown to my kids when learning about uh, the cellular structure is that Uh, All the mechanical movements are actual movements. We have molecules that literally walk across, you know, cellular matrices. And it's fascinating just to watch. And they have some really great graphics here that I'd love for you to see. So those of you on podcast, really hope you can get to Twitch or Trovo and watch this.
10: Um, I want to now go to what I think this is what you're about to see. First of all, what you're about to see is going on in you, right now, everywhere in you. We're going to let you look briefly at a cell made by the chemistry department at Harvard University, which was getting a little worried that wasn't getting chemistry majors. So they thought maybe they should do something jazzy. So they know that textbooks in chemistry, you know, the chemistry always looks like circles and very boring. So they said, let's just actually make it like it is. So, so this your, is
14: basically what you, what's going on in your cells right now. These are different fibers assembling, disassembling your cells. What this is this is a thing? This is a, a, a molecular machine that walks around in your cells. Right now it's called a kinesin and transports things. So for example, things want to move around your cells. They don't just float around randomly. They I, actually I like actively that. moved around with little machines, little robots, nanobots that power your cells. Um, what you see here is actually the, uh, an amazing machine coming out of these little pores which actually assembles other machines. This is like the factory floor of your cells, it's called a ribosome. It reads your RNA. RNA is, uh, trans- uh, comes from the DNA, it's translated into RNA, and then it basically uh, gets read out by uh, these ribosomes, and they make new machines, which then do other things. So there's all kinds of machines in your cells, things that rotate, things that walk, things that make other machines, things that read RNA, things that copy DNA, that open uh, sh- let's sh- look at this again while around. we
10: talk about it can we look at it a second time i yeah. I, I, I first of all for how
14: fast is this in real life all these things going on oh so, some of those things can happen quite fast some k- kind of slow and that's actually interesting thing of the nanoscolar you can create all kinds of time scales depending on how many pieces have to act together some things can well, happen a little in guy nanoseconds columb- some columb- in milliseconds some columb- in microseconds um you know they're, they're actually um
2: So the walking protein that you guys saw, that's how Alzheimer happens. Uh, I want you to picture that walking protein with the feet that was walking across the transport, which happens almost instantly. They trip and fall and they create tangles. This is how you get things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's uh, and they create traffic. So then they get stuck. So again, this is uh, why graphene is a double-edged sword, uh, only because you don't understand it and they really don't care. There's some people that will incorporate it. Other people that have innate immunity within their DNA structure where they can incorporate it their way. So it's all about the power of your genetic code and how untainted it is. Obviously, People will be like, oh my God, they put it in and out. No, they've been doing it for a while and I'm going to show you that. But, um... It's important that you understand how the body actually responds when we talk about subunits and units and cellular signaling. This is why when I um, went into that office of this professor, you know, he had this huge board and it's like he was missing one key component. And I was like this. And that changed his research. He got new funding and everything. Are you salty, Tori? No, I'm not. (laughs) If he can contribute to it, that's great. But you're going to see how they're using graphene to transfer support therapies it's not something new
14: they make steps in a kind of millisecond range I would say in, the in what like milliseconds or thousands of a second and we a little, little so bit you can have this boom, So it's actually boom, faster boom, than that it's boom. much faster than that so they made it kind of looking So like,
10: this is a garbage man that big what sack is just cell garbage and he's going to take it up this tube or it is going to take up the yeah there are
14: some machines that walk to the from the inside of the cell to the outside of the cell to kick garbage out and others that go from the outside of the cell to the inside the cell to bring the good stuff in so they' are specialized machine they only walk in certain directions. Is this what about the color? That's pretend, right? Yeah, that's you know, those things are so small, you really can't, uh, you know, would be very st- I mean, unless you had stage lights <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. This is a copier, yeah, is a copy, and a, that little wormy thing are coming out. It's a new protein coming out, and here's a new protein has formed, two of them linked together, and they make a new nanomachine that goes off to do its thing. So, you mean, this, like this is what. The plants have and animals have and
10: we have we're built from these things right that's and you this look, is what's going on yourselves right now and so you look inside and you you i think it would be fair to say that this seems extraordinarily complicated oh, really? extraordinarily sophisticated
2: It is extremely so sophisticated that you can't say it was a fucking accident that life just occurred, okay? Let's just put it that way. If you're a real scientist, you're humbled by his presence in that. Now, as you can see, this is exactly what happens. When mRNA is translated, new proteins happen to bind together and create a new machine. And that new machine can alter almost anything. Now, this is how they Uh, pretty much uh, hijack and hack humans. Now you'll say what? Well, there is hijacking humans, not the upgrades that they had tried to put in place over 40 years ago were supposed all failures. And the reason is because of genetic coding, genetic coding, That's the reason that the transorganic entities uh, were not viable because of genetic coding. It has to be highly specific. So in the meantime, they have used vaccines to alter and or create a more neutral genetic code within humankind in order to manipulate it. Now here is a an old video about why graphene hasn't taken the world on yet. <laughs> I beg to differ, but let's go.
15: It may not look like it, but I'm creating one of the strongest and most versatile materials on Earth. Graphene. You've probably heard buzz about it. Graphene made big waves back in 2004, and it's knocked around science news ever since.
8: A global race for graphene. You know, it's not just limited to one little thing. One of the, of the greatest discoveries of the century.
7: could be the key to a lot of mind-blowing technology. But that was almost 15
0: years
15: ago. Where are all of the graphene wonders that we were promised? The bulletproof armor, the graphene circuitry, the ultralight airplanes, the graphene medicine, a space elevator.
0: So the next time man walks on the moon, maybe he'll take the elevator to get there.
15: Clearly lots of the buzz never went anywhere, but graphene does exist. Engineers have gone from making one fleck at a time to producing it by the barrel full.
6: Do you want to try to pick it up? Sure. So the graphene-
2: rev- And like I said, my friend learned how to mass produce it in a red cup
15: we were promised, may already be in motion.
4: You can stretch and pull on it. And in fact, a good way to visualize it is that if you had a big enough sheet of pure graphene, you could hold up a soccer ball on
15: just one atomic layer. And that's insane. Joseph Meany is an analytical chemist who co-authored a book about the promise of graphene. He explained to us that graphene is just carbon, like coal or graphite or diamond. The difference is in how the carbon atoms are bonded together and in the unique shape that the material takes. So it's just a single atom sheet.
6: There's no Z dimension to speak.
2: And that, just so you know, when you have graphene... um, Within your body, uh, as he said, one single layer that you can't even see, if you remember from the previous uh, scientist, Dr. Hale, who put out, um, that you can't even see, it can hold a soccer ball. So imagine if you had a human filled with graphene that integrated, that mean that that human would be able to float in water without moving a muscle. And they would be able to do things that other people cannot.
4: Speak of in graphene. And these atoms of carbon are arranged in interlocking or tessellated hexagons, kind of like a chicken wire. The bonds between the carbon atoms are actually extremely strong.
15: Back in 2004, researchers in the UK discovered that they could produce graphene with some shockingly simple tools. A hunk of a particular type of graphite and some standard issue tape.
4: Yeah, it was just a very large hunk that you could hold in your hand.
6: And they took the tape and put it down onto the surface of the graphite and
15: just lifted it off. From there, they used chemicals to dissolve away the tape, and they were left with tiny flakes of graphene with remarkable properties. It's impossibly light, yet incredibly strong. It's flexible, and it's a highly efficient conductor of electricity. The researchers won a Nobel Prize in 2010, and today in 2018, literally everything around us is built or enhanced with graphene. Okay, not quite.
8: I think it's very easy for, for the media, for the press to sees on any new scientific or technological development as something that's going to be transformative. You know, scientists come up with these amazing new materials and then everything changes, and of course it never really happens that way.
15: Philip Ball is a reporter who's written a bunch about the graphene hype machine, and I asked him to throw some cold water on the story. Hello? Hi, is this Philip Ball? It is, yes. Hi, how you doing? This is Corey calling from The Verge.
8: Hi, hello, Corey. Of course, with any new uh, technology, it, the, the, the reality is it generally takes years to develop it. It would be unreasonable to expect graphene to transform our lives overnight.
15: The uphill battle for any new material is that it can't just be better than existing technology, it has to be much better. Philip says that's the issue with graphene replacing silicon in electronics.
8: Certainly there are companies who are exploring its use as a conductive uh, electronic material, but of course we already have such materials, and graphene has really got to have big advantages over what we have already if it's going to displace what is already a well-established, mature technology.
15: But that's not to say that graphene hasn't gone anywhere in 15 years. We found some engineers who are making materials with graphene today — materials that could one day even end up in spaceships. The company is Vorbeck Materials, and their president, John Leto, showed me how far they have come with graphene mass production. And he gave us a free sample,
6: literally just like floating in the vial. And so if you open that up, um, you can take out, this is a bag of about 1.5 kilograms of graphene fits in a 30 gallon container. So it's very light, sort of very voluminous um, in its sort of raw, raw state.
15: Vorbeck is introducing its manufactured graphene powder to all sorts of industrial and consumer products, like RFID tags, clothing, and even rubber.
6: So you take the graphene, you blend it into, um, into rubber. And in rubber, they use sort of big blenders almost that beat the rubber around, mix the graphene into it. And what you get uh, by mixing the graphene with the rubber is very high temperature capabilities and also very high strength. Thinking about an application for this, you you talk about
15: uh, spaceships, right? Right. You're going through extremely high temperature to extremely cold temperature in outer space. You don't want rubber that would expand and contract and lose its strength over time. Exactly. This material won't do that. That's exactly right. And on the electronics front, Vorbeck has created graphene-based inks that can be printed in mass on standard printing presses. When printed on waterproof fabrics, they can be washed, heated, ironed, wrinkled, and twisted without damaging the circuits. This is extremely promising for the future of graphene-based wearable electronics, which John says we should be on the lookout for in 2019.
6: What we really hope is that, you know, we can walk into uh, a room uh, five years from now and most people in that room will have an article of clothing that has graphene-wearable electronics in it. So
15: there are big things happening with graphene. We just have to be patient and we can't believe everything we read about it. And for what it's worth, we've been here before.
8: It, it's this sort of long-standing notion of a wonder material. I think it does go back to the, the dawn of the plastic age in the 1920s and 1930s. You know, you, you saw the same kinds of promises made for them, that they were going to be these, you know, wonder materials that would do everything. I just want to say one word to you. Just
10: one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Just so you Plastics,
8: plastics. you know, they, they clearly had uh, a huge impact um, and they do all kinds of, of useful things, but they have their limitations too. I guess it was really a sort of reference to the, this sort of long-standing idea that of, of wonder materials that were, you know, going to solve every problem.
15: Graphene might not be a wonder material any more than plastic is, but the way John sees it, if graphene works well on its own merits, the hype won't matter at
6: all. We really don't want our customers to care whether it's graphene or not. What we want them to know is that this thing, this device that you're using, works better for longer than anything else you you can get. And whether it has graphene in it, whether they advertise it and use that hype as part of the marketing or not, is sort of completely irrelevant. It just is better.
2: So I'm going to ask my friend um, today if I can get the video of him in his garage mass-producing graphene in a red cup. (laughs) See, the thing about graphene is that um, it is a vector and it will help integrate things and it makes them stronger, more durable and unable to be removed. It is a super glue. As you saw, printable materials Graphic, the experiment with Starbucks, and I started and I kind of went off on it. Uh, So Starbucks had a cafe in one state, and I won't mention because it's a violation of law, and that is something that I can't disclose as to how, but (laughs) um, they needed to open up new shops in this state, and they had one shop in the city that was overburdened and overrun with work. Like, they didn't have enough people to be able to, to execute the coffee orders they were getting. So what they did was, in the most popular drinks that they knew, which was their drip coffee and um, a specific drink, uh, (laughs) they had graphene in it. Graphene is used um, as a biological method of uh, um, transmittance of signals. uh, And it can be integrated with... um, uh, temporary technology that you can insert into a biological organism that will then, you know, be expelled and run inert. And it's only temporary so they were able to trace and see where these people were going to so if there was one specific company where people would uh conduct most of the runs for uh coffee runs right or uh purchasing this specific thing they would um be able to track them from the coffee that they bought and drank so the minute it went into their system all they had to do was be around um near Uh, field communication devices and or uh, Bluetooth devices and or internet connected Bluetooth devices and or internet connected near field communication devices in order to be able to track. So I have this Starbucks and I want um, to find out, you know, let's pretend it's in Cleveland. I wanna find out where everyone's coming to from this downtown location so I can open up another one closer to where everyone's buying coffee. So if they're buying coffee, say I have a Starbucks in public square and that one's super super busy and I want to alleviate some I noticed that the Huntington building which is across the street from it the majority of the people are going back to the Huntington building guess what I'll do I'll rent out space in the Huntington building and create a Starbucks there because I know everyone that ordered coffee from the location diagonally across the street um you know was going there and this is how you can determine uh you know how to market Market your products efficiently. Another one is when you get um, handouts at rallies. Uh, so back in 2008, uh, Obama had people handing out signs and stickers when he was running for office. So it may or may not have been that uh, RFID... Uh, graphene ink was used on certain stickers that were distributed. Therefore, they were able to realize where the aggregation of these stickers were distributed, and that would determine where he should go and rally the most in order to get more votes. So if he saw that most of the stickers were fine, I don't know, in East Cleveland, but he saw um, a smaller percentage in West Cleveland, he would arrange to go to West Cleveland to speak because he knows that he's already won East Cleveland. And let's pretend I was Walmart, a big supermarket, and I wanted to see what cereal everyone likes. Oh, shoot, I'm selling a lot of Frosted Flakes. All right. So now I'm going to go to Kellogg and I'm going to ask them, hey, Kellogg, I'd like to purchase your Frosted Flakes and repackage them as cheaper versions, even though they're the exact same thing. So now Walmart that had attached graphene to the packaging on that shelf knew exactly what cereals people were buying. Every time they scanned it and sold it, they would know the location. Not only that, they would see where it would be in aggregate. So this is why in some places you find some products and others you don't. For example, you can't find pumpkin Noosa yogurts in certain areas in Oregon, but you can find them in others. Why? Because they've already tracked and seen what households eat them the most. This is how it works. Now, imagine if graphene was in medications or within a human being. How do you utilize something that can meld with the anatomy of a human being? with unknown definition of what it does. Is it simply a glue? Will it cause those little feet on the microtubules carrying out garbage to trip and fall and create tau tangles like we see in Alzheimer's patients because of the metal response and zinc-like finger proteins that cause damage or the increased in copper that graphene may attract if done incorrectly? Could it be that when it binds to bone, it makes the bones lighter in density but heavier in weight? Could it be that if it binds to your neural anatomy that you are able to tap into, I don't know, AM, FM, or cellular networking methods These are all questions that have not been answered, yet they have no problem pushing such technology out. So let me show you how this all started uh in regards to deliverance of drug delivery which i've tried to kind of tip on its head a little bit by offering uh certain bubbles that carry medication but instead they believe that nanoparticles should be used to convey medication better like in cancer so here's this clip in
16: addition to the cancerous one and this is what causes you to lose your hair So how are these nanoparticles going to work? We're going to take our nanoparticle and fill it with our cancer drug right there. And then we're going to attach a targeting ligand to the surface of the nanoparticle. And I'll explain how these work in just a bit. Once we do this, the nanoparticle is injected right into the bloodstream. Here's what it looks like. Above and below the bloodstream on the left side are all the healthy cells. These are the good guys, which we want to keep alive. The nanoparticle can't attack them because of this tight junction blood vessel, which prevents our nanoparticle from reaching them. On the right hand side here are all the cancer cells, which we want to attack. How do we do this? Well, all these cancer cells have a receptor ligand on their surface and are surrounded by leaky blood vessels. This is good because it allows our nanoparticle to have access to these cancer cells as it makes its way through the bloodstream. So, as the nanoparticle
2: Okay, and let me just help you guys here when he talks about leaky walls. He's talking about VGEF receptors that they have in order to vascularize. So they're not leaky. It just means that they have direct communication because they require a specific type of blood flow in order to to exist. This is why they try to um, kill blood flow. And this is why most people, unlike me, of course, I have to be backwards, when when they undergo cancer therapy, uh, they lose weight. Because it strangulates these um, uh, um, blood junctions and adipose, which is a fat cell, requires um, a high blood supply in order to be um, existing, in order to exist. So... Uh, what you would call leaky, right? It needs direct access. So this is why um, the ligand can target cancer cells. Now, in other ways, blood clots happen in the same way because if a ligand accidentally bounds to a healthy one that doesn't have a leaky one because the ligand can, well, then you're screwed. You get a shit ton of blots and spots and traffic in your bloodstream, which is a clot, and then you get strokes. But see, if you're using a nanoparticle that can't detect the difference, it's only guided by the ligand, and ligands can actually accidentally sit on the wrong receptors you don't want and can cause other reactions, this is where you get multiple organ failures. But anyway, this is why people with chemotherapy sometimes get really, really sick
16: nears these cancer cells, the targeting ligand on its surface can bind to the receptor ligand on the surface of the cancer cell and cross the leaky barrier to eventually kill it. This is the big thing that separates treatment with nanoparticles from chemotherapy and radiation therapy. Because of all this, we're going to reduce the amount of healthy cells being attacked as well as increase the amount of cancer cells that die. And all of this is going to make for a happier, healthier you.
2: And just so you know, what is a ligand? a ligand is a protein it's simply a protein that is created to bind to a specific receptor that is what a ligand is now um This is, see, there's a, there's, okay, this is important, but there is a myth called active targeting when you're using um, uh, therapeutic methods and technology and how things are distributed. Now, there's a, uh, this is to talk about uh, therapeutic and efficacy of medications. Uh, This is quite interesting. I'm only going to play a little bit of it because it's quite technical, but um, uh, this is quite fascinating. The first couple of minutes, what she says, in regards to targeting and how she dispels this active targeting which is a myth. Um, There's no such thing as active targeting. Take a listen.
13: And we've already talked about in class about the enhanced permeability and retention or the EPR effect where tumors or other things can accumulate nanoparticles Uh, just passively there uh, into the tumor. And so why would you actually want to target? And what is targeting? So targeting is uh, putting a ligand uh, onto a nanoparticle that will specify the nanoparticle to go one place or the other. So this allows you to increase specificity of the nanoparticle. So in that way you can get tumor versus normal, um, or you can get one cell type versus the other cell type. Now, mind you, this doesn't, it's not binary. It's not on or off. You can just change the distribution by a little bit. Um, and I'll show you examples of this uh, later in the lecture. With targeting, you can change biodistribution. distribution. Again, with nanoparticles, you cannot get rid of the kidney, the liver, spleen, um, the organs of the RES. Uh, but you can distribute them more into the tumor, for example, than into the liver and spleen, um, like you, and, and even greater than in the passive targeting of the uh, EPR effect. You can increase the efficacy to toxicity ratio, and so you can use much less drug in a targeted nanoparticle than you would use um, in a free drug, and hopefully that would decrease the side effects, uh, the toxicity. And then finally, active targeting is a myth. So putting a ligand on something does not mean that that nanoparticle will home only to the the site that you want to target. That's not how it works. It still does the pharmacokinetics. It still will, if it's an intravenous injection, it will still distribute homogeneously throughout the whole bloodstream and then be taken up past the blood vessels at the same rate. It's just that it, the, the targeting ligand will bind to whatever molecule that you've designed it to bind to, and there it will stay and will accumulate. So it's not active targeting. It's not a T cell or any kind of white blood cell where they can chemosense um, and they can go and seek out things based on a, on a gradient, a chemical gradient. That's not what happens here. So active targeting is a myth. It's both passive targeting, it's just when it gets into the tissue it binds there and is taken up by cells or it binds uh, to that molecule on the cell surface and releases its drug there and that allows it to stay and accumulate and it's less prone to clearance.
3: A whole variety of molecules inside of cells are actually undergoing active uh, types of movement to be localized uh, in specific destinations in the cell. Now, all of these types of biological movements that I, I've described are due to the actions of these special enzymes called molecular motor proteins, which interact with cytoskeletal tracks. And there are two main types of cytoskeletal tracks: one are the larger diameter uh, microtubules, and the smaller diameter uh, actin filaments.
2: So I want you to understand that every single cell of your body has these highways and county roads. That's what I would call them, where they move and do things. So when someone tells you I'm injecting you with mRNA and it doesn't change your DNA, they may be saying uh, that... It, That doesn't do it. But the second step does because it's ligand binding. And this is what you need to understand what ligand binding is. What is a ligand? It's just a freaking protein. It's a simple freaking protein. Now, this is how you create signals for cells to do things. Um, So here is a fantastic... Uh, lecture from 2014, if I'm not mistaken. Let me see. Yeah, 2014. And it talks about quantitative measures and signal transduction. I want you guys to listen to what this professor has to say in regards to it. In this lesson, we'll look at some general principles of ligand binding. This
17: process is referred to as signal transduction because we're going to transduce a signal or convert a signal from outside to inside the cell. In each case, it requires a receptor in order to receive the signal and a ligand that provides that signal. They will interact in a very specific way and that's gonna create an internal response. And so it's not a simple binding in the case of just one molecule binding to another, as we saw in the case of hemoglobin that binds oxygen. In this case, there's a more specific interaction with ligand and receptor, and that's going to generate a response. It always involves a conformational change in the receptor, and that allows it to interact with other proteins or
2: enzymes. Here's a Okay, let me change that into English. So what she's saying is when the ligand, the protein, binds to the receptor, it makes it conform, change its shape into something else to kick off some type of function. So here are some examples that she's going to go through like how the growth hormone is a polypeptide. That's the type of, uh, you know, um, uh, protein it is, and it binds. It comes from the pituitary gland, and its physiological function is to what? Stimulate growth and metabolism. So this is, you know, the known GH hormone that comes from the pituitary that goes out into your body, binds to receptors as a ligand, which is a protein, right? So how does it come out of the pituitary gland? Hmm, mRNA transcribes it into that then the little microtubules kick that shit out of your cell, and then it goes and does its job. I want you guys to understand the things that they are muddying for you. Here's a table from your book, some examples of
17: hormones or ligands that might bind receptors. It's not important you remember the hormones and their classes and sources, just to note that there are many different types. Some are amino acid derivatives, some are steroids, some are peptides, some are even gases, and we'll look at an example of nicosinoid as well. The idea of a hormone is a substance that's produced in one tissue, but it has its effects on multiple tissues. Let's look at a ligand binding curve, and hopefully this shape looks pretty familiar. First of all, it's important to recognize that the ligand binds with very high affinity to its receptors in a similar way that enzymes are very specific for substrates
2: so um this basically, and I'm going to explain it to you. She's showing you how pharmacists can determine the toxicity of a medication or the derivative or how good um, you know, the binding is. Your concentration of how much of a protein you need is dependent on the strength that it binds to and how much you need. Do you you know how many times your doctor says you need to take the whole course of the antibiotics, and when you change your medication, they're like, Oh, it might take about a week or two, because what happens is you build up a concentration of that specific element you need within your body to bind to the correct receptors to do its job. And that's basically how they round it out and fix it. So um, this is how they determine if something is working correctly. Uh, so uh, it's it's highly important for you to understand um, what she's saying. And she's talking about how much of something you need in your system before it can actually do the something they want it to do.
17: The idea is that we want to communicate a very specific signal and we want it to have a specific effect. And so that interaction must be with high affinity so we can communicate the signal we want to. If we look at an equilibrium of our receptor binding its ligand here's the receptor ligand complex then we can set up our our very simple dissociation constant here. If we plot on our graph at the top of the screen here the amount of receptor bound to ligand as a function of or a fraction of the total amount of receptors present and do that as a function of ligand concentration, this is the type of curve that we get. As you can see, very familiar hyperbolic plot. So if we're looking at a fraction of, out of all of the receptors there, how many are actually bound to ligand, the highest number we could have would be one. As we uh, add more and more of the ligand, we get more and more binding, and then we reach some saturating value which represents the point at which all of our receptors are bound to ligand. Very familiar hyperbolic plot. Well, as you can imagine, to get to our KD, we're going to take the halfway point, that is, where half of the receptors are
2: bound. That will give us our value for our dissociation constant. So this should explain to you how and why you need two shots rather than one shot, so in in a sense. So now I'm going to take you to uh, nanoparticles as antivirals. This comes from 2018 for the European Foundation of Clinical Nanomedicine. This is where they discuss nanoparticles as antivirals. Pay attention. Pay really close attention.
18: Please.
19: Okay. Thank you, everybody. Um, I will uh, tell you today things that, in my group, we are doing against viral infections. So, it should be uh, known that about half of uh, mortality due to diseases in the world is due to infective diseases. And a big share of that comes from viral diseases. The reason for these large mortalities are multiple, but among them you can actually appreciate in this slide here, the fact that there are many known human conditions that generate diseases and many known viruses that attack humans but uh, only a subset of them uh, are have uh, vaccinations and, and other, even smaller fraction, have approved drugs. So for the most part when you have a viral infection, you're on your own. Your immune system has to respond to the viral infection, otherwise things will not end up in a positive way. Now, uh, there are three big classes of drugs that we currently use against viruses. And they are divided into antivirals. These are drugs that block the um, replication of viruses intracellularly. They are the only truly FDA approved drugs, but have a problem that every virus uh, uses a different pathway for replication,
2: So let's stop right there. So I want to take you back to how safe they tell you that these vaccines are. They tell you that they hijack your machinery to produce things when antivirals literally block from anything hijacking to make anything, right? Pay attention, pay attention.
19: And a lot of viruses, not all, change the pathway upon mutation. So these drugs actually are very virus-specific, and hence they're good when you have a known virus that is a target. But if you want to develop a new drug for all of the viruses that were in black there, that will be a very tall order. Also, you'll be, uh, you won't have time to develop a drug like this in case of an emerging disease, because it takes too much time. Obviously, one then then comes to the conclusion that what we would need would be broad-spectrum drugs, drugs that are like broad-spectrum antibiotics that would be developed and work on a very large number of viruses, and potentially on viruses we don't know of that will be emerging. That would be ideal and also economically ideal because a lot of these viruses have high incidence of deaths uh, in African countries where there is not a lot of money to pay for the development of these drugs, so developing a single one would be great. Now, there exist a few ideas on how to make broad-spectrum antiviral drug. They need to work outside the cell, not inside the cell. So they need to work in this stage here of a uh, viral replication. They are called virucidal when they block viral infection in an irreversible way. To trivialize this, if a virus was alive, I could say they kill a virus. Now, there are many, many virucidal molecules, for example, strong acid, strong surfactants, or pure alcohol, but they're not drugs because they are actually toxic to the virus, but as well to the host. And this, if you look at how a virus replicates, is kind of obvious, because a virus replicates inside a host using host material, so it's chemically done in the same way. The other approach is called virostatic. It typically consists in imitating a cell receptor that attaches to the viral ligands, and by attaching there, prevents viral entry. These uh, drugs, these molecules, are non-toxic, because they imitate something that already exists in nature, and they are broad spectrum because human viruses all. I uh, have as a ta- one ligand that is highly conserved. It's called the attachment ligand, and the target for the attachment ligand is one of three cell receptor: sialic acid, uh, epinephosphate, um, uh, proteoglycan, sialic acid, or car receptor. So there's only three targets. Each one of them, roughly, you can say it's one third of uh, viruses. So you can do them broad-spectrum. The problem with these drugs is they are they are based on a binding event, and binding events upon dilution below of a binding constant re- de- lead to the detachment of the two things that bound, and in this case, release a perfectly infective viruses. So while it it is very easy to actually for example focus on this particular uh, target of the attachment ligand and have a drug that can actually block in vitro all of these viruses so you see it goes from dengue to hepatitis to hiv uh, ebola zika it is easy to do that in vitro It it is Impossible to do that in in vivo, and people have tried and all failed, because upon dilution in bodily fluid, you will release a perfectly infective virus that will restart the replication mechanism. So the conundrum here is that we have in vitro ideal drugs. They are broad spectrum, as we need them. They are non-toxic, and in fact, the king or the queen of these drugs is heparin. FDA-approved drugs in vitro will block all of the viruses I showed you before. But they are reversible, and this makes them medically irrelevant. That's a summary.
2: So just so you understand, he says that it's possible to do it, you know, in your lab, but when it's out in the ether, right, it's not. It's kind of like the lesson that Craig Bentner learned that, in vitro in a controlled environment let's say his bacteria he was able to genetically modify it to not be virulent but the minute he took it out of a controlled environment and put it in vivo meaning out there in living living alive guess what all the genes that were knocked out to not cause virulence reappeared somehow because he can't play god and remove so here is where he's saying None of this stuff is successful. No broad spectrum antiviral injection is um, efficable. There's no efficacy in it the way you make it in vivo, meaning when you're alive.
19: One more thing to add for a nanoparticle person like me, among the many, many literature that you can find on this, people have developed gold nanoparticles that behave like aparin and in vitro, they block the infection. So what did we do in my group? we said we need to make that attachment irreversible. So we need to make the attachment as an initial step of a series of biological events that ends in an irreversible uh, pathway. If we do that, we can have the magic bullet. I'm exaggerating, but we can have a drug that is close to ideal in terms of antivirals. We started with nanoparticles that we studied for years that have very low toxicity, um, and we've gone all the way to test them in pigs at 15 times the concentration I'll talk today about, with no effect, no no visible toxic effect. When we actually take these particles and we mix them with... um, um, lentivirus, so HIV virus genetically modified to be green fluorescent expressing. What we find is that as long as we have sulfonic acid on the nanoparticle, we get nanomolar inhibition of a virus. This is great because all other literature that I showed you before has nanomolar inhibition in vitro but also it's great because in this test all FDA-approved drugs are nanomolar. So we are in the same level with literature and we are same level with FDA-approved drugs. After that, Thanks to the grateful collaboration with David Lambo, we went to uh, wild-type viruses, so viruses extracted from patients, not genetically modified, and we have nanomolar inhibition of these viruses, all of them: uh, herpes simplex virus 1, herpes simplex virus 2, and papilloma virus. The key point is, so far, what I've shown you is that our drug works exactly like the literature. But we designed them in a different way. My idea was that I'm going to design a drug that has flexible, long ligands, different from what is in the literature, so that upon binding to a virus, these flexible ligands will bind in a multivalent way, which is what, by crystal structure we know, the attached ligand is ready to accept. So, multiple binding. And upon this binding, the large amphiphilic nature of the ligands we had designed will establish hydrophobic contact. This applies a pressure. And we all know that in virology, a pressure is equivalent to the bursting of a virus. So what we are doing is a mechanical drug, not a chemical one, that locally applies a pressure to the virus. And the idea was to eventually lead to the virus bursting. Bursting is an irreversible event. So let me show you the results now. We compared our drug so nanoparticle coated with long, flexible, highly amphiphilic ligands, with heparin, as I said, FDA approved the golden standard in this field, and with the gold nanoparticle that had short ligands. What we saw was the following. It, all three drugs in cell viability tests had no visible toxicity. If we did dose array response, all three were nanomolar. But then we did a virucidal test. What is this test? We take from those plots the ic uh, concentration. So the concentration on which the drugs blocks two logs of infectivity. So we put a titer of viruses with that concentration of drug in a sample. In the other one, we put the same titer of virus. So at this point, these two samples have a difference in infectivity of 100-fold. Then we diluted, diluted, diluted this sample, up to the last dilution, where here, in the control, we could see an infection. And what we're plotting here is the effectivity of a control versus the control plus the drug. As you can see, even though I started with with 100 times, two logs, less infectivity, upon dilution, all the effect of a drug is lost. That means that the, the drug reversibly detached from the virus and left infective viruses that happened for happening happened for the short ligand viruses but for our long amphiphilic ligand viruses the infectivity was two logs less and was kept even upon dilution and that was in a broad spectrum way this property stayed against herpes simplex 2 papilloma virus respiratory syncytial virus hiv and dengue and the effect is a cascade of long uh, uh, of of events that take time, because if I start doing the irreversibility effect at zero minute, it's mostly reversible. At five minutes, half of the effect is there, and only in half an hour, all of the effect is there. So it's a cascade of long-lasting events that leads to this irreversible effect.
2: Now, just so you know, they've been using gold particles and graphene for a very, 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 very long time. These experimentations go back to the 60s, and then it kicks off, like he said, a cascading event. But hacking humans is something that a lot of people aren't thinking about. They think it's very (laughs) sci-fi. People like me really don't exist, do they? So we're having people inject people with... Modifications to their body and their immune system that are irreversible, hoping that things will stay as such. Now, I had mentioned years ago about a patent out that they will use crypto digital currency. I I don't want to call it crypto because it's not hidden. It's digital currency. And this is where I'm going to end it with this, uh, you know, hacking of humans. And you'll see how that goes. Um, there is a patent that will uh, allow a company to check what work you are doing. And this is not something ha ha ha. You need to see who got that patent and when. And, um, This is how um, molecular programming is delved in. Now, the majority of these people that you see, scientists, talking about this and researchers, uh, don't have the actual knowledge. Uh, They are filling in the gaps that those that have the technology but don't understand it are trying to reverse engineer it. It's like they came from the future to the past so that way they can have more control but then maybe from the future to the past or the parallel or whatever i mean quantum entanglement at all may have come to stop that too um that sounds super sci-fi but i mean so does this
7: Nanotechnology may sound like a concept from a futuristic science novel or movie, but the truth is it's not that far off and it could be the next big cyber threat. How so? Keep watching and find out. Nanotech, a recap. Nanotechnology is any technological endeavor that deals with anything with a dimension of fewer than 100 nanometers. While the concept was first brought to light in the late 1950s, it wasn't until the late 1980s that technology advanced enough to actually allow scientists to work in such a small field. Nanotechnology has several applications, including food, technology, fuels, batteries, environmental causes, chemical sensors, and even sporting goods. The medical field is one of the most exciting for nanotechnology at the moment, though most developments are still in the experimental phase. With these developments comes the ever-present technological risk of hacking. Nanotech in humans. Building new muscle with carbon nanotubes is one such possibility. Scientists at IBM are also working on using nanotechnology to analyze DNA in just minutes instead of weeks to treat cancer patients with a customized treatment plan. We're also seeing the use of nanotech in chemotherapy or vaccines to target specific types of cells in the body where experimental nanosponges are being tested to absorb toxins in the body. Nanotech is also being explored as an early diagnostic tool to detect cancers and infectious diseases.
2: So I'd like to tell you about two stories right now. We're going to stop this just for a second, and I'm going to tell you two stories. So when I was a student, I happened to work with a team that created a chewing gum that they sold to the United States Army that they could chew and brush their teeth. It's actually more effective than brushing your teeth if you chew that gum. What? Yes, and another thing that I was able... Do you know who created Narcon? No. <laughs> it was actually out of the University of Kentucky. Scientists at the University of Kentucky created a new type of medication that is nanotechnology that when you get injected, do you know how it works? Okay, here's how it works. We all know that nothing can pass through the blood-brain barrier quite easy. So what they did was they... Um, inject you with, uh, medication that is like a sponge and it attracts the drugs out of your system. So Narcan was, is, is just like that. That is exactly what it does. It can spread throughout your body almost instantly and absorb and pull out, out of your blood brain barrier, all that information. Oops. I mean the drugs that were there. So this is how it works. It's nanotechnology that the way they created it and how they facilitate to suck in everything that's like cocaine or heroin related. So it reverses and stops the binding of... The- huh, that was very interesting. I hope that I'm back online now. Um, my internet was actually cut... My internet was actually cut. That is crazy. That is crazy. Oh my gosh. That is so crazy. That is crazy. It literally cut when I said, oops. I don't know how much of it actually went through, but let's, uh, oh my gosh, damn. I mean, this is already out there. Why are you,
7: what? A single nanoparticle in the body with its own processor
16: could be hacked.
7: But they also say that if someone had more than one particle in the body, which many treatments would require, a hacker could theoretically turn them into a network in the body, using the body types of cells and the present technological risk of hacking. Nanotech in humans. Building new muscle with carbon nanotubes is one such possibility. Scientists at IBM are also working on using nanotechnology to analyze DNA in just minutes instead of weeks to treat cancer patients with a customized treatment plan. We're also seeing the use of nanotech in chemotherapy or vaccines to target specific types of cells in the body where experimental nanosponges are being tested to absorb toxins in the body. Nanotech is also being explored as an early diagnostic tool to detect cancers and infectious diseases long before our current technology is able. Some ideas include a tiny device that gets injected into the body as a sensor or a medical delivery device. This all sounds positive, but there's a downside too. Is it secure? Tiny nano devices are typically controlled by a program on a traditional electronic device like a computer, smartphone, or server, meaning they could be very hackable. Some digital security experts posit that a single nanoparticle in the body with its own processor could be hacked. But they also say that if someone had more than one particle in the body, which many treatments would require, a hacker could theoretically turn them into a network in the body, using the body's own systems to communicate and do their bidding. One of the most obvious and dangerous applications for biomedical hacking is ransomware. If a hacker took over your inner nanotechnology devices, they could demand a ransom with fatal consequences. If you're unable or unwilling to pay, they could easily turn your body against you, and at the very least, make you suffer or get sick, if not kill you. It may also be possible for unsavory characters to use nanotechnology itself against their enemies, not only in hacking attacks such as inhalable particulate powders to treat lungs. Some worry this technology could be an easily weaponized delivery method for bioterrorism efforts beyond the hacking dangers. Getting infected with
2: or it could be just a way that they can have unlimited spying and beef flies on many, many walls if in the wrong hands.
7: Something could be as simple as breathing the air, taking a shower, or getting a regular vaccination from your doctor. Mitigating the risks. The most powerful thing that needs to happen to lessen the risk of hacking with nanotechnology is legislation to regulate the types and strength of security required on nanomedical devices and even the function of devices that will be allowed. Medical device manufacturers who wish to ensure that their devices are not likely to get hacked should do proper penetration testing. Though this area is still in its infancy, we can use the term nanomedical technology, nanomedical hacking, and others that truly describe what it is until something else comes along. The term biohacking sounds like the perfect term to describe hacking medical technology, but it actually refers to do-it-yourself biology. This is a self-improvement technique that uses diet, exercise, and mental techniques to hack the body to improve mood, health, and overall life satisfaction. Neobiology may suffice as it generally refers to any new advance in biological technology. Nanotechnology and medical device hacking would certainly fall under this umbrella but the umbrella is very large. Lastly, it could also fall under the Internet of Things label, but this is a broad term, so it doesn't exactly define it. Risk Realism Has there been a true case of medical device hacking? The answer at this point is not clear, but there have certainly been crippling hacks of medical centers. At this point, the risk seems to be mostly theoretical, though it's just a matter of time before black hat hackers pick up on what white hat hackers have been researching and trying to prevent. Some experts believe it's only a matter of time before something fatal happens involving the hacking of a medical device, and that only then will medical providers and legislators take this issue seriously. As mentioned before, penetration testing is one of the best ways to find vulnerabilities in medical devices and ensure that your products are as secure as possible. Alpine Security offers a full range of penetration testing, including in the medical field. If you'd like to be on this cutting edge field of security and technology, inquire within on our site. And if you enjoyed this video, be sure to like, comment and subscribe
2: so hacking humans do you think that's far man we have had nanotechnology inserted into um our bodies on this planet for so long <laughs> this biodome whatever you want to call it here's what's awesome though And I think I'm going to end it with that. The quantum systems in respects to graphene. This is just an introduction. Remember, today should answer a lot of questions that people are asking but don't have the fundamentals for. So I am hoping that um, this gives you a little bit more fundamental.
18: And once you have this matrix, this could, in our examples, will be a two by two matrix. You can then find its eigenvalues, the two eigenvalues. So what that means is that for every value of K, there'll be two eigenvalues. And if you plot them out, E versus K, you'd usually get two branches to it. Because for every K, there'll be two of these. And the example we'll go through will be similar in that sense. For every K, there'll be two values. In general, as I've mentioned, it need not be two by two matrices. It could have been 10 by 10 matrices. Then for every K, you might have had 10 branches to this. General, you mean ban-
2: there would be duplicity, multiplicity, parallel. Okay, that's what the math is. All right. I have no idea why my internet keeps cutting out. It's like nobody wants you to see this. You're gonna freaking see it. I've, um, I am constantly having to shift my. <laughs> this is just so crazy. This is super crazy. Just as he was talking about graphing, my gosh. All right, here we go again.
18: Often will have many, many branches. Now, the example I'll be using, this is this example of graphene. It is particularly good from a pedagogical point of view in terms of understanding the principles because it has enough complexity that I, you have to appreciate all the subtle aspects. And yet it's simple enough that I can do it on a whiteboard right here. See? And as I say, 10, 15 years ago, I'd say, I'd have said, you know, it's a great academic example, not of any great practical significance. But today, that has all changed in the last 10 years or so. Because around 2004, people, I, this this group at Manchester, who were actually able to you know, isolate this layer of graphene and study it, and that started a whole new field in itself, where people have been studying all kinds of properties of fundamental properties as well as applications of graphene. And what is this graphene? Well, it's a monolayer at the It's a monolayer at the surface of graphite. That is graphite, if you know, is a layered material where different layers are relatively weakly coupled. And I guess the story goes that this Manchester group actually were able to peel off one layer of atoms, essentially, from the surface by just putting down a scotch tape and peeling it off from there. And if you looked at this one monolayer at the surface, but it see is carbon atoms arranged in a hexagonal lattice like this and so when we write down the h matrix it would be it would have this one basis function at each atom and one might you might first think that well that's good and it's all periodic so we'll just go ahead and uh, find the ek relation right away But the first question you have to ask is, what's the unit cell? That is, how big a unit cell do I need so that everything looks nice and periodic? And if you had, if you chose a unit cell that was just one atom, you'll see it won't work. Why? Because if I stand at this atom, I got two on the left, one on the right. But if I stand at this atom, I got two on the right and one on the left. So the neighborhood looking from here, looks different from the neighborhood that you see from there. But what we need is to identify as a, a unit cell such that no matter where you go, it all looks the same, the neighborhood looks the same. And that you can do if you say, take two of these and you could call this an A atom and you could call that a B atom. Kind of like what we did in the last module where we had a line of atoms, you see, and we had an A atom and a B atom and an A atom and a B atom. Here it's a little more subtle two-dimensional version of that. You now have this A's and B's, and you could take that as another unit cell. That's another unit cell. That's another unit cell here, and that's another unit cell. And each with its A's and B's. So what we have to do then is, given these A's and B's, I need to do this summation. Remember, stand at any point n and then sum over all m. So I stand at one point, which is this one, let's say. So this is my n. And then I can move the m around. The m could be right on top, could be that one, could be that one, could be this one, could be that one. And I need to write down all these h and m's, those matrices. And remember, this is a Tight binding nearest neighbor tight binding model, which means the non-zero elements are only those that connect neighboring atoms. So here also I'll assume diagonal elements are epsilon, nearest neighbor connections are T. So what that means is if M is right here, if M happens to be right there, then the matrix I'll get, I can easily write it. Let me write it in red so you see it clearly. So when M is right here, I'll get a matrix that will look like Epsilon on the diagonal and T is on the off diagonal because it's basically at this point, A atom, B atom, A atom, B atom. This is the AA, AB, BA, and BB.
2: In other words, it's mirrored and inverted.
18: This is it. So this matrix is easy to write down. Now, now let's consider what you get when N is here and the M happens to be over there. That's the M. So now the question is, how do I write the corresponding matrix here? So remember then, the rows are about, you can take this off, the rows are about N, A, B. I'm trying to write H, N, M. While the columns are about M, A, B. So if you now look, you see the only non-zero connection is between N, B, and M, A. So it's NB and MA. So the only non zero connection is that element. That's the only non zero thing. Anything else? Let's say look at NA and MB. Well, NA is over here, MB is over there. There's no connection between them. So you can easily convince yourself all this is zeros. So it's really just that matrix. Okay? Now you come.
2: Now, I'm just going to tell you that this shows you how predictive analytics work and how future predictions work. You see the connections, the nodes, and uh, you know, a lot of people keep thinking that humans should be as data points, they are just nodes. And you can see the reflection, the inversion, and the corresponding connections that they all may have into them so then you would just assume here where the t would be the only connection it has so you would be able to plot it out see i'm going to make all of you quantum physicists this is so easy to understand as you see it's here and it's there so you can surmise what happens over here this is how you can predict now Graphene is a two-dimensional pathway. See, we're in a 3D world, right? They say we're in a 3D world, but graphene is two-dimensional, which means that if you are in a 3D world and you add uh, a buffer of a two dimension, you would say what, that you add dimensions or do you take away it would be three dimensions plus two dimensions is five dimensions minus one, which the original 3D mesh that happened with the two dimensions. So you take, you have three, you insert two, but in the end you only get four. Uh, and this is where tetrahedrons come. The theory of the tetrahedron comes from, etc., etc., etc. So this would, in essence, create a 4D axis. So how can the scientists that have provided nano technological facilitated remedies and or therapies and or interference and or drugs within a 3D molecular programmed body that's 2d expect to understand its translation and actions in the 4d they can't it's unfathomable to them which is exactly what the layman says is what why would you be providing a vaccine that you cannot control or say with full knowledge and conviction what the outcome is I hope you understand what I'm trying to convey. Nanotechnology is something that many people believe they understand, but they don't. It is even hard for scientists that are not involved in molecular biology, cellular biology, to conceive the thought of working on such a micro scale and understand how Um, this vaccine would operate on that scale because it's never been seen or done. They know that if they use gold, you know, gold, which is pretty benign to the system, it causes irreversible binding. The same goes for graphene, but graphene is 2D, so therefore it is smart. See, it comes from graphite becomes graphene. A little portion of it is all you need kind of like niobium. Nobody knows why niobium can trigger regrowth of enamel. This would put dentists and cosmetic dentists out of fucking business. Niobium can regrow tooth enamel, which everybody has learned that tooth enamel can never grow back. Yet niobium can, They found that can what niobium, another two-dimensional nanoscale on a nanoscale. It causes regrowth of enamel, regrowth of bones. So (laughs) this is probably why everyone's like, why is everybody buying into this niobium thing? We need to do a report on it because they shouldn't have such movement. And then they have to answer to the SEC saying we haven't done anything different. (laughs) Why? Because you're not supposed to know about it. You're not supposed to talk about it. There's only one uh, Published somewhere in the deep end before they scrub that shit too article that talks about how niobium can regrow teeth Regrow teeth meaning your tooth was knocked out. You don't need prosthetics. You don't need a crown. You got a cavity That's okay chew on some fucking niobium lace gum <laughs> just saying i'm not saying that you should just just saying that if uh introduced correctly to the teeth they found that it regrows your enamel so these are two-dimensional things that enter into this three-dimensional and interact because of their shapes remember i told you what is the difference between Venus and Earth, they're all, they're molecular structure-based, right? They, they claim that silicone-based organisms live in Venus or exist in Venus, and we have carbon-based, and it's pretty much identical. Again, a carbon hexagonal aromatic, it's an aromatic, graphene, niobium, and one more element that I'll introduce you to soon. So, again, while they're playing God, trying to hijack your machinery that they don't even understand how it works yet. I mean, if you ask them where a memory is stored, they're still giving you that, oh, somewhere in your brain. It's not. It's your fucking DNA. That's your code. They're just talking shit because they don't want you to know just how important your genetic code is. It's got everything. It's got everything. So, Um, like I said, it, your genetic code is your own operating system. And you own that. And right now they're forcing not only to take it, but to modify it. So there's one more we're going to talk about. That's pretty awesome, but, um, not yet. So I wanted to introduce you to nanotech in a, in a sense of understanding how it operates because we hear so much about it from many brave doctors that are out there telling you these things. And we've been talking about graphene and genetic modification and, um, all of these changes, you know, they're, they're, Literally out of this world, and imagine if there were upgraded humans that weren't good um, that existed. I, w- I just want you to think imagine if there was a person out there who was upgraded but was not compassionate toward mankind, was not compassionate toward uh, human. Um, hurt and pain. You know, have you ever watched, um, there's so many movies with this thing where they create like this ultimate super warrior, super soldier that, you know, even the government can't control. And then that super warrior decides that the government's bad, right? Because it wants to protect like this really hot chick or a kid or a dog. Right. And then, you know, Uh, it's like, no, you're bad. You just want to kill all the puppies and, you know, I'm going to protect the puppies. Don't push me. I don't want to be evil. I don't want to unleash what I can do, you know, like Terminator type stuff. Right. And then, um, you know, it's protecting the puppy or really hot chick that it meets and falls in love. And, um, suddenly they make the puppies, right. Become Cujo's, Right. So all the puppies around the super soldier become Cujos and then. Government's like, see, I told you there's no good puppies. They might be good and cute for now, but they all are fucking Cujos and they're destroying this world. Look at the Cujos. They're destroying this world. Come help us so that we can make everyone like you and we don't have Cujos. We don't have puppies like this, right? So what they do is they take the super soldier. Have you seen that movie where they take the super soldier and they mind fuck the super soldier telling the super soldier just how bad all the puppies are and they're Cujos. But then the super soldier finds out that they injected stuff or they made sure that the puppies that were around the super soldier were all Cujo's, right? All the puppies were Cujo's. And then the super soldier found out, Oh shit, you set me up to not like puppies when I innately like puppies. Cause I'm part of these puppies. I'm like a puppy too. I'm just a little bit different. I'm like, you know, a bigger puppy. And then he gets really upset and then says, okay, game on, I'm going to make these puppies crush all of you. You've seen that movie before. And this is exactly it. They're messing with shit they don't understand. And then when they think they understand it well enough and they create and inject and promote, mm, it will sling back. It will sling back. Um, it's it's been said these, these uh, these um These movies have been done before, right? You've seen this movie before. Where the super soldier falls in love, has a soft spot for humanity. You know which one? Do you remember, oh crap, was it Hulu or Netflix? where it was like this family that had spaceships and they were kind of migrating because everything's like messed up. And then, and the guy would call him Mr. Something. um, And then they crash and then there's part of the alien. And then this alien is actually programmed to kill all humans, but that human helped that alien. And then he, he called him William, I think. Do you guys remember what I'm talking about? That is quite identical, quite identical. It's like that raw, yeah, lost in space. There we go. That's it. And, um, you know, the little kid helps the Alien that was broken up and puts it together. So then the alien really likes the kid, even though the alien is programmed to hate the kid and hate all humans, um, that alien decides, no, 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 you guys are all wrong. We need to protect them because they're actually kind. What they've said, or, you know, those examples that we watch on TV where they kill each other, rape children, you know, eat each other, whatever. And, you know, they step on each other isn't really true. It's only a small 1% that do that um, that's actually quite on par with the real wars that are happening right now between the elitists, um, trying to maintain full control over, um, man and, um, what is, what is to come. I want to say what is to come. So it's, um, quite fascinating how this, um, This is going, I think that my system is uh, once again terminated. I don't know if you guys can hear me because I can't click on anything. Um, (laughs) I really can't. Let me see. So I, I, I want you to understand that the war that they've declared on the people is not a simple war. It is a war that has been waged for years on end. And It is destructive, it is unforgivable, completely unforgivable. This is how they do it, completely how they do it. So what do you think they were doing with all these vaccines? Trying to track, trying to destroy? Because as you could see, they've been experimenting with things like HPV, HIV, for so long to try to be able to manipulate the code, the human code. They supposedly uh, decoded it in um, twenty in the year 2000. Uh, well, it was 1999, right? Bill Clinton brought that um, with Craig Vintner who Uh, like Gates, not a doctor per se. Um, He was actually a high school dropout, just a genius. You know, while people talk about the 5G towers, you know, infiltrating and doing, that's already happened. You don't need a tower in order to tap into information. Okay. You don't need fiber optic cables you don't need anything that they create in order to tap into a stream of unlimited information. Birds tap into a stream of a guidance and nobody knows how. How do they know which way is south? Do they pull out an app for it? Are they following a tower? Are they pulling out a compass? Why is it that everything that you require in order to survive today, which is obviously shelter, Right is owned by someone else to give you shelter, water. You're not even allowed to collect rainwater or have your own well anymore sometimes. Everything that you require across this biodome is owned by others. And this is the last frontier, the ability to control the information that you have, the information that you can utilize. That's exactly where they're at right now. This is exactly where everyone is right now. I hope that my archivist can actually fix this and take out the dead air and the deletions that have occurred. So what we're witnessing aside from the attack on the ability for us to think, to prosper, and to exist, they have taken every little bit of you slowly. They've taken your ability to have shelter, well, Someone owns the ground, someone owns the wood. You can't go out into the woods as God intended and chop down a tree and, you know, form that wood the way you want to. I mean, not all of us are skilled, so obviously we'll pay someone to do it. And that's what happens. When we rely on each other, that's great. It's called barter. Hey, dude, you form the wood that I just chopped down. I'll feed you some really good food. Hey, dude, you do this. I'll do this for you. But they monetize that. They sequester that. And this is how companies and then corporations came to be. You like stories. Well, okay, I write a book. Oh, but I need to print it. I'm really good at making prints. Great. Um, you print it. I'll give you a free book. Great. Now it's corporations. Water. Well, why get a well? Why should you have buckets with all this rainwater and have to filter it? It's just too much work. Let's simplify it. Our need for constant simplification has caused us to have issues with having control over what we do. So the simplification and the need for constant um, ease of access is um, is what led us here. We trusted that all of these things were being done for good and they were because the road to hell is never paved with bad intentions. It's always good. And I'm not saying we should go back to the barter system, but we should go to back to the system that doesn't take away our right to choose to be able to do it the long way. I mean, if I want to go out into the woods and cut down a tree and build my own log house, I should very well be able to, if I want to collect rainwater and use that, I should be able to do that. If I want to lay out solar panels in my backyard and, you know, power up my house, I should be able to do that without the regulation of the general energy grid. That's it. They've taken away your right to choice. So now they're taking away your right to accessing information. This is what censorship is about. And this is what you are about. The minute they can actually hack your own biological system, it's game over. You've heard of the heart attack guns and whatnot, but those require devices. That's what's really important. So I know today was a very extended version, but we did have a lot of interruptions. I mean, I had to serve a little bit of crow with the whole NSA crybaby spiel when they already know who's in charge and how it's happening because I told them. And you can be, who are you? Well, I already said my name. So they already know the question that we should ask ourselves is oh, why are they reporting it so many years later? I mean, most of them already knew that's the question you should ask yourself. Whose side are they really on? Why are some whistleblowers more whistleblowery than others? That's how it is. He creates everything, but he can also take everything away because he allows what occurs and how it occurs. Because he says so. God bless everyone. On a dark desert highway, cool wind in my hair, warm smell of colitas rising up through the air. Up ahead in the distance, I saw a shimmering light. My head grew heavy and my sight grew dim. I had to stop for the night. There she stood in the doorway.